Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. Charlotte Readers Podcast Beyond 300 is about you, the listener. We want your feedback, opinions, recommendations, and questions. Email us or leave us a voice message and you might hear us mention you or play your message on the podcast. Just go to the homepage or contact page at charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the links to email us or leave a voice message. It's easy to do. Let's have some fun together. For all things Charlotte Readers Podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find a list of all episodes, an alphabetical guest list with links, detailed show notes for each episode, a community blog, and more. We'd love to have you visit. You can subscribe to Charlotte Readers Podcast wherever you'd like to get your podcasts. We're on all major podcast platforms. And the best part is, it's free. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, readers and writers, welcome to episode 311 of Charlotte Readers Podcast, Beyond 300. We hope you enjoy this episode as much as... uh, we did putting it together. I'm here with Sarah Archer today. Hannah LaRue is on maternity leave. Hannah, I hope you're doing well. Uh, and that baby's not uh, keeping you up too late at night. But uh, Hannah will be dropping in from time to time. But, hey, we're, we're joined today by Mark West. He's one of our collaborators uh, on the podcast with uh, his storied Charlotte blog. Mark, welcome. Well, thank you. And it's good to see you both on my little screen here, Landis and Sarah. <laughs> so this will be fun. Yeah, we're going to have a good time. Uh, and uh, on today's episode, um, we've got a – we got a, a packed episode today. We've got uh, two authors we're featuring. Uh, we've got uh, an interview by Hannah with New York Times bestselling author uh, Jennifer McMahon about her recent novel, The Children on the Hill, a modern horror story with chills and twists. And also an interview that I did with uh, author Nicholas Graham about his novel, The Judas Case, this historical crime fiction that takes a different look at what may have happened to uh, Judas. Uh, yeah, and we've also got a great two-minute tip from Charlotte Litt. Um, Paul Reale is going to tell us about how there are no first-draft writers. Right, and then we're going to finish up with our review of 10 helpful articles from our community blog about writing and the business of writing. It's the final part of uh, our blog discussion uh, on the uh, first 30 uh, blog posts on Charlotte Reese Podcast community blog. But, uh, hey, we're here to uh, talk reading and writing, and, uh, you know, we got, uh, I guess, a couple of, community announcements here that we ought to kind of run through because uh, kind of a packed uh, month coming up in November and we're kind of at the end of October. So let's hear what's on uh, on the lineup for uh, the uh, Charlotte uh, Lit November lineup. Hi, this is Paul Rialli with Charlotte Lit. Thanks to Charlotte Readers Podcast for inviting me on to talk about our November 2022 programming. In classes this month, we have something for everyone. In multi-genre, we have Irene Blair Honeycutt with Writing Nature, Trees as Muse, which will explore a variety of writing about trees and use them as prompts for our own writing. In nonfiction, Megan Modaffrey leads Writing Observation and Delight, a nonfiction writing class grounded in careful observation of the world based on Ross Gay's The Book of Delights. In fiction, Kristen Sherman leads Crafting Better Sentences, really designed for those who are in revision who are trying to sharpen up their sentences. In poetry, Aaron Rose Coffin leads a poetic introduction to poetry, which is a great place to begin if you'd like to be a better reader of poetry 
and to get started in writing. And finally, the podcast's own Landis Wade leads Both Sides of the Mic, How to Nail the Author Interview. Landis has been in the chair from both sides, and I know we'll have some great perspective on how to promote your book from whichever chair you find yourself in. Finally, I'd like to tell you about a new offering at Charlotte Lit. It's called Poetry Nightclub. Four times a year, we're going to bring in an acclaimed poet to Charlotte and set them up in a really funky setting, Starlight on 22nd in Noda. They'll be reading from their work, talking about their work, and having a conversation with the community. We hope you'll join us for some of these programs. You can learn more at charlottelit.org. Yeah, that's a lot of stuff packed in there, isn't it, folks? Yeah, and your class sounds really good. I think, um, I mean, a lot of authors have to do interviews when they're promoting a book, but it's not something you necessarily think about, oh, wait, like, how do I do this and how do I make it good? So I think that's a valuable, you know, thing to share with writers. Yeah, and I think also that uh, your multiple perspectives, Landis, will really make you the ideal person to talk about that. Yeah, thank you. And we're going to put you on the hot seat in our next episode, Mark. We appreciate you. Mm coming in and I was just thinking when they said uh, putting poetry in kind of a funky setting I was thinking about this uh, book that uh, we're going to be talking about The Peeve and the Grudge and other preposterous poems uh, I just got a kick and was laughing about this as I was reading these poems this <laughs> this morning we're going to have fun talking about uh, that children's book which I guess is for could be for adults too we'll talk more about that because I got a real kick out of it mm -hmm. uh, yeah I try to write it on both levels <laughs> it's really fun um, well, look let's let's listen to what's uh on the lineup at uh, Charlotte Writers uh, Club um, this month because uh, they've got a they got a speaker every month as well. This is Dave Collins, president of the Charlotte Writers Club, reaching out to you with an invitation to join us for a meeting, maybe two, maybe long term. We'd like that. The club meets on the third Tuesday of each month at the Tivola Senior Center. Some months we gather to listen to a craft talk from an accomplished writer. Other months, our speaker is a publicist or an agent, someone who knows the book business and can help our writers market their work. Anything likely to make life easier for our members is likely to come up sooner or later. Our meetings begin at 6.30 p.m., though most of us try to arrive a few minutes earlier to talk stories. Whatever you're writing, poetry, short stories, personal essays, a novel, a memoir, screenplays, or plays for the stage, we have people in the Charlotte Writers Club doing the same thing. Our speaker on November 15th is Landis Wade. You know him as the long-term host, more than 300 episodes now, of the Charlotte Readers Podcast. I think of Landis as a member of the CWC, the man who arranged our speakers for several years. And of course, as a novelist whose most recent offering, Deadly Declarations, tells the story of three quirky retirees who go to work solving mysteries and putting the bad guys in their place. But on the 15th, Landis isn't going to talk about writing. He's going instead to draw on his experience marketing four books, on the difference between building a platform and book selling. It's all there in the title of his talk, All the Book Marketing I Did Not Know and Other Tips for Launching and Marketing Your Novel. Our meetings are open to all, and we hope you'll join us. For more information about CWC's programming, visit our website, charlottewritersclub.org. Oh, what a surprise. Something else that mentions me. How could that have happened when I was planning all this? You know? You've got a busy month coming up. <laughs> I do. Well, that title, though, all the marketing I did not know is an absolute 
true fact for authors, no matter what stage you're in in the marketing, because uh, things change, things move around. But uh, every single day, I seem like I learn something else about the about that. In fact, I, just last night, I was on the, on Zoom with uh, Nancy Northcott, uh, Mark's uh, better half, and we were talking about uh, legal thriller writing. Had a good time doing that. I think she's going to square me away with some kind of ring light. Mark, yeah, she was. I was she was of... talking to me about that last night, saying <laughs> she said Landis has light envy. Um, but uh, Nancy does a lot of uh, recordings uh, for Continual, which is the uh, program you were on last night. And um, she always has it all set up with the ring light and everything. Yeah, no, it was good. I was the only one that was kind of talking from like I was in some kind of dungeon or something. Because, I, But, I, but my, my, my excuse was I'm an audio podcaster. I don't get on uh, Zoom you know, as often as she does. So we'll, we'll go with that. Hey, let's talk host news for a minute. Uh, Mark, tell us a little bit about what's going on in, in your world. Of course, this is releasing as of October the 25th, so you'll have to kind of project forward a little bit uh, as you're thinking about uh, what's happening in your world. Well, um, all sorts of things are happening in my world. As some people know, I'm an English professor at UNC Charlotte. My specialty is children's literature, but I take an interest in all things literary. Um, right now, I'm spending a lot of time getting ready for Epic Fest, which is the public library's big uh, literary event that will take place at Imaginon on uh, November 5th. And so uh, I'm on the steering committee for that. So that's taking a tremendous amount of my time right now, but it's time well spent and something I'm so glad we're coming back to a meeting uh, at, in person. That's a wonderful, uh, we, the Epic Fest had to go dormant in terms of uh, COVID response, but now we're coming back. So that's the main thing I'm working on right now. That's great. Well, um, a little bit more about that. Um... Tell us what happens at Epic, Epic Fest. Epic Fest is a free public event uh, aimed at parents uh, and families uh, and obviously the children. Um, but uh, the children usually can't come by themselves, so they need something like a parent to show <laughs> up and bring them there. Um, but it features children's authors who do book signings and other kinds of events. But there's also a lot of fun activities, craft events, and performances and um, just running around, you know, Imaginon. I'm such a big supporter of Imaginon. It's such a unique facility. Um, when my son was little, I took him to Imaginon almost every week because um, there's so many things to do there. And so it's just so nice to be able to, to meet in person and to have the kids be involved in this celebratory sort of event. Um, so, uh, it'll be a lot of fun to last for most of the day. It starts at 10. So, um, it will be, uh, uh, it's right there, you know, by seventh street station. So people can go over there and get food. Um, it, it should be a big family event and one that celebrates literacy and literature. Um, you know, I, I'm a big believer that we should always put literature back in literacy. You know, literacy is a lot more than learning how to decode, uh, the, the written word. It, it, it involves celebrating language and immersing oneself in stories. And, and uh, that is what happens at Epic Fest. That's great. I feel like you know, one of those scenes <clears throat> where the uh, coach is giving you a halftime speech, I want to run out now and uh, put some literacy back in uh, literature. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That was inspiring. Uh, well, so, okay, Sarah, what's going on in your world as of around October the 25th? 
Um, so at the end of this month, my, my sister's birthday is that week. So I might be going to uh, the mountains to be under elk to spend some time with family, which will be nice. Um, and yeah, right now I'm just continuing to work on this screenplay that I'm developing and doing some short fiction and just writing away. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Well, um, in the marketing vein, uh, um, tomorrow night, October 26th, I'll be at Yonder Bar in Hillsboro uh, for sort of a intimate conversation over uh, signature drinks. Uh, I think they're come up, they're going to come up with a drink that that might have been something that Captain Jack would have enjoyed uh, uh, back in the 18th century, and we're going to sit around and talk about the, <laughs> uh, the history that led to uh, deadly declarations. That'll be a lot of fun. So if you're in Hillsboro area, come out to Yonder Bar. Uh, tomorrow night we'll we'll have a good time um all right we're going to jump uh let's see right into our book recommendations but right after this we have an affiliation with libro.fm because you can get audiobooks from them and when you do you support independent bookstores if you'd like to sign up with them for your audiobooks use the promo code charlotte reader and claim your free audiobook all right, so uh, this is where we uh, make book recommendations, and uh, normally Mark is uh, calling in with his, but today we've got him in the hot seat. So, uh, Mark, we're going to let you go first with uh, uh, our book recommendations today. Well, today I am enthusiastically recommending a, one of uh, Judy Goldman's many memoirs, but this is her newest memoir, and it's called Child, and it is an amazing book. It deals with Judy's growing up, days when uh, she was taken care of primarily by an African-American woman uh, who took care of her during her childhood. And it's not just a memoir in the sense of uh, recording the things that happened to Judy as a girl growing up in uh, just south of Charlotte, but it's also a really introspective pondering of the racial dynamics of a white girl being raised in terms of a nanny-like situation uh, with by an African-American woman. She really does not shy away from the complexity of that relationship and um, looks at it both from her point of view, as she recalls it as a child, and also from her adult contemporary point of view, uh, looking back at those days. One of the things about um, Judy Goldman's memoirs, and she's written several of them, is that she just doesn't record what happened in her life. She brings people in and helps them understand the human dimension of what she's talking about. I think that's one of the reasons why her books are so relatable, um, when you, her memoirs. They're, they, you feel like you have things in common with her, even if the details are different, the human dimension is relatable, I think, to everybody. So this is uh, one of the best memoirs I've ever read that deals with the growing up experience, and I highly recommend it. And for those of us who live in the Charlotte area, uh, it has an added benefit of capturing what life was like, um, uh, you know, in the, in, in the time period in which she was growing up, which would have been, you know, early civil rights days. So that's my recommendation. Yeah, that's great. And Judy um, has talked memoir many times. Uh, she's she's spoken about it uh, all over uh, the state and the community. And uh, I remember when she talked about it on the podcast, how she talked about 
uh, memoir is not just uh, repeating what happened. As she said, that would be boring. Uh, what she talks about is, uh, as I recall, is that the most important aspects of writing memoir is the reflection. You know, what do you, what do you, what can you pull from what actually happened? And she says there is where you might find connection with other readers because they might have similar experiences that they can draw on. It doesn't really relate necessarily to her story, but relates to something in their own story. So she's pretty good at it, as you say. Well, so uh, great, you know, great recommendation. She's writing about the time period when she was a girl and, you know, Judy, uh, she, she readily admits that she's not a kid anymore, but, um, but she talks about that right. time period in the, in the forties and fifties when, when um, the race relations in the South were not what they are today. And she, she faces that on head, head on. And I'm impressed by that. Yeah, it's great. All right, Sarah, what's up with you? Um, so today I want to recommend a book that I actually read a few years ago, but it, it really stuck with me. So I like to recommend it to people. It's called The Glitch by Elizabeth Cohen. Um, and it's about this uh, woman who's a CEO in Silicon Valley. She is very sort of successful, high powered. Everything in her life is scheduled down to a T. Um, and then this young woman shows up who claims to be a younger version of her and who you know looks like her and has a, the same scar as her and all this stuff. <laughs> um, and things kind of go in directions that you might not expect. It's it's a really interesting book. It's very well written, very funny, very smart. Um, it's got a little bit of a kind of surreal, absurd edge to it, which I always enjoy. Um, and it's just totally original, a very, very unique story. Um, and I loved her writing style. So I would love to see more from her in the future. And I definitely recommend The Glitch. All right. Well, um, everybody knows that I, I love thrillers and mysteries and plots that move. And so I'm recommending David Baldacci's The 620 Man. It's a uh, thriller. I read it uh, a couple weeks ago uh, on my Kindle. Um, it moves fast. Uh, there's a former soldier who's now turned financial analyst, uh, and he's there's a there's a murder, uh, of course, early in the book, uh, right in the Uptown Office Tower in New York, and they accuse him of committing the murder. In fact, they have him on tape, and they have his key card coming in the door, but of course, he wasn't there, and so there's a little. Tech, you know, you learn a little bit about how they can clone technology in this book as well, so that's interesting, but. I think the image that uh, gets the book started and why they call him the 620 man is every morning he's on the 620 train, you know, to uptown New York. And it always stops at this particular junction. And through the trees, there's a gap. And then there's this opulent mansion with a swimming pool in the backyard and a young woman, uh, very attractive, who's always sitting by the pool in a bikini. And so when it stops, of course, all eyes turn toward this woman. Um, one day she's dressed in a bikini in a certain color, Another day she's dressed in a different color. And I won't tell you more, but uh, there's a certain sort of organic sign system going on there <laughs> with with what happens in this plot. So uh, anyway, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, in fact, I'm going to be interviewing uh, David Badalci, uh here in October for an episode we'll put out sometime before the end of the year. So that'll be, that'll be fun. So that's our uh, recommendations. Now we're going to go to uh, Alyssa Pressler with That's Novel Books and hear what she has to recommend this week. Hi everyone, this is Alyssa with That's Novel Books. We're a small used bookstore that operates out of a retail collective called Loquet in Camp North End. And I'm calling in to give you a couple of recommendations of books I've recently read. First up is Swimming Lessons by Claire Fuller. I really loved the way that this book was told from two perspectives. One was the present day voice of a daughter whose mother has been missing for uh, decades and her father is dying. And then the other perspective is actually 
letters from the mother to the uh, father of the daughter, Gil, uh, her husband of kind of analyzing their marriage. Um, so years before she had gone uh, missing, it's always been a mystery for the family and through the letters and through the family's um figuring out of what to do with the father as he nears the end of his life, you kind of piece everything together. Um, it was a really fun book. It was interesting. It didn't blow me away, but overall I would recommend it, um, especially if you need like a palate cleanser book after reading something heavier. And then the next book I want to recommend to y'all is Crying in H Mart by Michelle Zahner. I had no idea that she is uh, a semi-famous musician, actually. I looked up some of her music after reading this book. So that's her claim to fame. But this book really took the world by storm maybe last year or two years ago. She explores her grief and uh, childhood after her mother's death. Um, and she does it through classic South Korean dishes that her mother used to make her. I think this is one of the best books I've read on grief. She doesn't skim over some of the more complicated feelings that she has for her mother, but she really honors and connects with her through the book as well. I loved it. I will uh, highly recommend it to anybody who asks. Thanks so much for listening. Yeah, thanks to um, Alyssa for that. She uh, uh, wrote, wrote alongside us for the last three episodes, and uh, Mark's going to be with us for this and two more episodes. So, uh, Appreciate that. Uh, all right, we're going to jump to our first author feature uh, in just a moment. If you like what we're doing and would like to help us defray the cost of this podcast, please consider becoming one of our patrons through the Patreon website. For as little as $5 a month, say a coffee or a happy hour drink, you can help us out. And in return, we have a library of exclusive episodes, over 120, that you can access through the Patreon website. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Charlotte Weir's podcast and join up. You can cancel any time, by the way, and we thank you in advance for whatever you decide to contribute. All right, we're in act two, and uh, our first author feature is uh, Jennifer McMahon. Uh, Hannah did this interview, and uh, Hannah says she's been reading Jennifer for quite a while. This is uh, appropriate for this time of year. It's uh, The Children on the Hill, kind of a spooky book. Uh, Sarah, why don't you tell us a little bit about Jennifer? Yeah, so Jennifer has been lauded by Chris Bojalian, um, who wrote The Flight Attendant, as a worthy literary descendant of Shirley Jackson, which is very high praise. Um, she's written 11 novels, including the New York Times bestsellers Promise Not to Tell and The Winter People, and she lives in Vermont with her partner and their daughter. Yeah, and I, I listened to uh, this interview, and it's uh, it's interesting, just a little bit of a background, apparently, and you've got these different children, and they make they bring this other child into the family. The child's not perhaps as normal as the other children, a little bit different. Um, monsters are real, so they say, because later <laughs> in life uh, when Lizzie, uh, the host of a popular podcast called Monsters Among Us, I like that, uh, she's investigating a young girl's abduction and she finds out that uh, there's a monster out there and it, it looks like a little bit like her once upon a time sister, so... You know, you got uh, monsters that are returning. So let's uh, let's jump right in and um, have that uh, interview now. Okay, everybody, we're here with Jennifer McMahon, which I am super excited about. I've been looking forward to this interview for a while. I feel like I've just been talking nonstop about her new book, The Children on the Hill. Um, for many of our listeners that know, I am 
very pregnant now and I've just been reading up a storm and this might be my favorite book that I've read throughout my pregnancy. So welcome to the show, Jennifer. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And I'm so honored that it's one of your favorites. That's so great. Uh, I, I love it. Yay. I, I, yes, <laughs> makes I am happy. Like, <laughs> no, it's so good. And um, honestly, you know, my family and I, we're all huge fans of yours for like over a decade. So this is kind of almost a fangirl it. moment for me. Um, I was telling my co-host, I'm like, I'll try to keep my cool, you know. <laughs> Um, but I'm so excited to talk with you and just kind of pick your brain a little bit about how you come up with these stories. I mean, they're so incredible. Um, and so you're up in Vermont. We were kind of just talking about that before we hopped on the interview, um, which is where the story takes place. Can you tell me just a little bit about how the setting came to you? Because the book takes place in kind of a, a very, uh, it's, it's, it's creepy, you know, like an old inn, like a psychiatric where mentally ill patients are being taken care of. Like, how did you know, how did this idea come to you? Um, the idea came to me from all kinds of places. I, you know, a lot of it was sort of pulled from the setting of Vermont where I live, of course, you know, I'm constantly inspired walking around and, and we do have some old psychiatric hospitals here in, in Vermont. Um, but part of it also was I grew up in the 70s, raised by a psychiatrist grandmother who worked at a small psychiatric hospital in Connecticut. And sort of I, I incorporated some of my memories of that into creating the setting. And another thing is, you know, so it was the 70s and things were different then. So I was raised by my grandmother and things were just different. We didn't have the boundaries and confidentiality and stuff that we have these days. So our house was like constant. There was this constant influx of her patients and ex-patients. There were house guests. They came for holidays. They came for dinner parties. There was one guy who came every summer for a couple of weeks and would like walk around naked and drink a bottle of bourbon at night. And it was just that was normal for us. It was like grandma's <laughs> patients were there. We had to like dress nicely and be on our best behavior and treat them nicely. And, and that was that. So that, you know, kind of incorporating my own memories was, a, was a big part of it too. Oh my gosh. So you probably never ran out of inspiration for characters. Is that right? No, no, not at all. I had a lot, you know, I, I use bits and pieces from lots of different things. And my, I have a pretty wild imagination too, that goes to some dark and interesting places. And I want to just get out there that in no way is the grandmother character in my story, my grandma. I was going to ask, I was like, well, was no, the inspiration I, directly yeah. from your grandmother? <laughs> no, 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 no. The Dr. Violet, Dr. Hildreth is, um, is nothing like me. I mean, she, she's a psychiatrist, a kind of a pioneer, like my grandmother, I believe was. Um, but other than that, the, it kind of ends. But, <laughs> that's, that's yeah. Thankfully, good, thankfully. A good thing. Yeah. When you guys read this, you'll be like, that is a good thing. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, that's crazy. And I read somewhere that you live in an older Victorian home. Is that right? And you, you have neighbors that call it the Adams house or Adams they family do. house. They call it the, Adams, the Adams family house. I, we have other people who call it the psycho house. Oh my um, gosh. You know, it's this old kind of crooked looking Victorian up on a hill and yeah, it's, it's got a lot of character. We love it. I'm sure that's it's great to write. Is it we not? Do. <laughs> it is, it is. And you know, and Vermont is just, you know, I've said, I get so much inspiration from living here. We've got so many great stories and I am a person, despite the fact that I like write scary stories, I spook really easily. So really? all it takes is like, yeah, absolutely. I am the person who screams loudest in horror movies. And if I'm reading a scary book, I have to turn all the lights on. And I do that whole thing of, is it scarier if the closet door is open or closed? Because if it's open, whatever's in there can come out. And if it's closed, I don't know what's in oh there. Oh my gosh. I totally do that. 
<laughs> so like Vermont, it's full of things that freak me out and I make myself do them all. You know, I go to like the haunted bridges and the haunted places and I spend a lot of time in cemeteries and I spend a lot of time walking in the woods. Right. And if I go to, the, if you go out into the woods, the dark woods and you're hiking and you're way back away from civilization, especially if it's getting dark, it's my, my mind goes to some pretty dark, scary places. So I get a lot of inspiration. There. Oh my gosh. Yeah. To say the least. <laughs> And I think I saw, too, when you were research, kind of like gearing up to write this book, you watched, watched a lot of horror stories. I think I'd, I was reading your acknowledgments and you're saying how your daughter and your partner, <laughs> you're like, thank you. I did. <laughs> yes, so, absolutely. What did you watch? So like, yeah. So I, growing up, I loved like all those classic universal monster movies uh -huh. and they like really shaped me, you know, like Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, that's a classic that I absolutely mm -hmm. love, and that plays an important part in this right, book, actually. Right. Um, Dracula and, Wol and the Wolfman and all that. So I had to rewatch all of those, and I, I rewatched, like, we watched Bride of Frankenstein so many times in this house. My family was so sick of it. I'm like, guess what? We're going to watch Bride of Frankenstein again. <laughs> look, look, let's really study like, it. Let's oh, see what's God. happening here. Look at that hair. Isn't that amazing? And they're like, no, we're over it. No, we're over it. Um, but yeah, those movies were really important to me growing up. And I, you know, like the character Violet in mm -hmm. the story, who's like 13 growing up on this, in this, um, at the inn with her grandmother, I was monster obsessed. I loved all things monster. Right. And my right. brother and I like had, uh, we didn't have a monster club, but we spent a lot of time out in the woods monster hunting. And we totally dug like holes in the woods that we called monster traps. And we would put sticks and stuff over them. And we went out there absolutely sure in the morning that we would kept caught a monster one day. And we never did. And I was so disappointed. The only thing we ever caught was we had this old neighborhood pervert, Mr. Smith, and he <laughs> fell into one of our traps one day because he was, it was in at nine and he was sneaking around and all the women in the neighborhood knew that he would sneak and look in your windows. And he came bang on the door and Dr. Howard, Dr. Howard. Or your kids have to go out in the woods and fill in that hole. I twisted my ankle and and he said, Well, what were you doing out wandering around in the dark on the path? That's, that you know, anyway. that would be a great short story, I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that though, because I feel like um as I was reading through the story, I just wanted to know about I mean, do you believe in monsters? Like, I mean, there, of course there's the metaphorical monsters, right? But then there's sure, sure. you know actual monsters which that's what violet and her brother yeah. eric and their new sister iris are kind of out trying to find these monsters they're like yeah we're gonna write this this story about monsters we're gonna catch them like <laughs> do you believe in that yeah. it sounds like you as a child as well like do you think that that's yeah they're out there I think that there is more to this world than meets the eye. I am certainly yeah. open to the possibility and I want to believe and I look for them. You know, here in Vermont, we have uh, the the Lake Champlain with a giant lake and we have a monster in it called Champ. It's like the Loch Ness monster. And every time I'm out near that water, I'm looking for Champ. And every time I'm in the woods, I have a, there's a guy who lives in Vermont who is a big believer that we have Bigfoot in the woods here. And so Ooh. every time I'm out in the woods, I'm kind of looking for Bigfoot signs and listening for Bigfoot. <laughs> and so there's monsters like that. And I, I just, I love all things monster. And I think the thing that drew me to monsters as a kid and now is kind of their otherness, right? Right. Like they, they walk, they enter the world of the humans, but they're outsiders. They don't belong. They're kind of fringe dwellers. Right. And I think I saw myself yeah. that way growing up. I didn't, I didn't know where I fit into things. 
And so I think that's why I related to them so much. And I was like, wouldn't it be easier to actually be a monster than to have to deal with all this human stuff? <laughs> so much so that actually, so I, I had a, I found a book on werewolves in the library one day when I was, I don't know, I was nine or 10 years old and there was a spell in it for how to become a werewolf. So of course I go into the woods and I do the spell, right? right? I go out on a full moon <laughs> and I light a candle and I do this spell and I'm absolutely sure I'm going to become a werewolf. But it's, you know, and then I go creeping back to my room and it doesn't work. And I wake up in the morning and I'm still human and I'm just pissed yeah. off and just devastated <laughs> and sad because I have to be a human kid and go to school and deal with school stuff. And oh my gosh. All the little dramas there. And <laughs> I know. Like, I know. It's just lame, you know, like I would rather. Just, yeah. <laughs> it would just be so much easier to like sprout fangs and fur and claws and go full on monster. Oh right? my gosh. Abs- I mean, honestly, I agree <sighs> with that now. <laughs> especially it's like I, I love animals too it's always like i would rather just oh, hang yeah. out with animals or like you know be a monster yeah. that sounds that sounds like more fun Me too. yeah <laughs> i think there's there are definitely days yeah, yeah yeah i guess we all have our in, our internal <laughs> monsters which is a whole other part and i feel like with this story it does a really great job of kind of tying together this sort of like that both both types of monsters and that side like kind of what our brains hide from us as children and that sort of thing so what about that kind of and I think um something that I really could talk about for hours is just like generational trauma and just like childhood trauma like what our brains hide from us and so what part of what drew you to that part of this um just absolutely so when I set out to write the book I was you know I was thinking it's going to be a monster story it's going to be an explorations of monsters and monstrousness Mm -hmm. and in looking at the monstrousness part like how we all have a little monster inside us right and how there's good and evil inside all of us and there's you know and and yeah I didn't really I wasn't thinking until I started writing about the generational trauma thing but that's a big part of it too and it's like the secrets we keep and the things that we don't tell other people and the just layer upon layer. Yes. Um, you are and, so good at that. Yeah. And compartmentalizing <laughs> things. And I'm also, I absolutely, I'm fascinated by in all my books, the way that the past influences the future mm-hmm. and the present and like, you know, how the secrets we keep affect us as we grow older. Right. And the filters that we use looking back and um, right. know, like how true are our memories? Right. You know, that's something that, and those are big questions that I ask myself all the time. And I, you know, I start these books with big questions. And I started this book, like, what is a monster? What does it mean to be a monster? What is Ooh. monstrousness truly? And did I really come up with any answers? No. I, but I had more questions and I had a lot of fun it was, it I think, trying to work it out. And Yeah. And I mean, I think you did kind of answer. I mean, I don't know, provoking <laughs> thought in a way, you know what I mean? Where it's like, I feel I yeah. love books, especially when it comes to psychological thrillers where you're really kind of thinking about, okay, this is a big idea. This is a big concept. And I think the the monster concept is a huge one. And I know transformation was something else that I felt like you really kind of dove into in this story. Just how, um, you know, you even that term was used several different times. Like I transform um, the girl or I transform my it's different ways of using that term. So I think that's such yeah. a powerful thing too. Is that some is that kind of a theme that you thought of in the beginning as well, just the transformation of a monster over time? Um, I don't think I thought of it until I was until I was writing it. Yeah. But yeah, when it when I started diving in and writing it, definitely the transformation piece. And who doesn't you know, when you're a kid, you're thirteen, you're growing up, don't you you're already yeah. transforming in ways whether you want to or not. Exactly. And you're like sort of on the cusp and you're still a kid but you're entering the world of adults and yeah 
who doesn't want to transform or be transported somewhere else into something else? And wouldn't, it's that whole like going back to wouldn't it be easier to go full on monster yeah. thing? Was it kind of fun to write about children like in that age group? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's it's very fun. And I, I do that a lot in my books. I often write about kids or yeah. younger um young adult women right and for some reason I get those voices and that's what comes easy to me and that's what's really fun for me I have a really hard time with adult (laughs) men (laughs) who doesn't (laughs) it's it's funny I um yeah I know the book I'm working on now my my editor sent me a note and she's like yeah all the the women characters are amazing but you're two like main adult men I just they're so flat and there's nothing going on and we really need to work on these guys I'm like yeah I know uh... but um yeah I had so much fun and I and with this I just I had a lot of fun going back into my own past and really like thinking about my childhood in the 70s yeah. talking to my brother and being like what were some of the things we ate remember grandma used to cook things in the crock pot all the time right. and what music was everyone listening to and like writing about the sunflower dishes that everyone had and I just I had a lot of fun and the games that they played like the rock'em sock'em robots I totally had that and I remember playing with those and light brights and I yeah so that was a lot of I fun. I love that because you know it's it's funny it's a pretty common thing where you're thinking oh I wonder if the author like who do they really relate to the most in the story that kind of thing to me it sounds like there's so many (laughs) elements of your actual childhood and your life in this story especially I think it's really cool that your grandmother had a similar role to the grandmother in this book that is really crazy so really you are just kind of building off of your experiences and hopefully um you know a little bit different considering this takes a horrific turn in some way yeah I kind of I took my experience yeah. as a jumping off point yes. and went to some dark <laughs> places because that's what yeah. I do and I like you know, it. that's that's where my mind goes dark yeah. places I like know. that um <laughs> so I'm going to pause real quick and see if you want to read a passage from the book for us I would love to Yay. I will I am going to read from the very beginning perfect and this is from the point of view of the monster <laughs> The Monster, August 15th, 2019. Her smell sends me tumbling back through time to before, before I knew the truth. It's intoxicating, this girl's scent. She smells sweet with just a touch of something tangy and sharp, like a penny held on your tongue. I can smell the grape slushy she had this afternoon, the cigarettes she's been sneaking, the faint trace of last night's vodka pilfered from her daddy's secret bottle kept down in the boathouse. I've watched them both sneak out to take sips from it. She smells dangerous and alive. And I love her walk. The way each step is a bounce, like she's got springs at the bottom of her feet. Like if she bounces high enough, she'll go all the way up to the moon. The moon. Don't look at the moon. Full and swollen big and bright. Wrong monster. I am no werewolf, though I tried to be once. Not long after my sister and I saw the wolf man together, we found a book on werewolves with a spell in it for turning into one. I think we should do it, my sister said. No way, I told her. Don't you want to know what it feels like to change, she asked. We sneaked out into the woods at midnight, did a spell under the full moon, cut our thumbs, drank a potion, burned a candle, and she was right. It was an exquisite thrill, imagining that we were turning into something so much more than ourselves. 
We ran naked and howling through the trees, pretended ferns were wolfsbane and eating them up. We thought we might become the real thing. Not like Lon Chaney Jr. with the wigs and rubber snout and yak hair glued to his face. My sister and I read that in a book, too. Poor yaks, we said, giggling, guffawing about how bad that hair must have smelled. When nothing happened that night, we were so disappointed. When we didn't sprout fur and fangs and lose our minds at the sight of the moon. When we went back home and swore to never speak of what we'd done as we pulled on our pajamas and crawled into our beds, still human girls. And I will stop there. And yeah, yeah I thought I, that would, I thought that'd be a fun one to read because I was telling the story about wanting to become a monster yeah. when I was a kid. So again, I was, you know, drawing stuff from life and incorporating it. Did and, that feel? And of course that chapter, yeah. that chapter goes on to some darker places. And we learned that this, the, the monster is actually hunting a girl or seems to be, and we, we're not sure quite what's going on. But. What an excellent way to yeah. open up the book, though, you know? I mean, it d- definitely grabs you in. I remember just when I read that perspective, I'm just thinking, what is going to happen here? What is yeah. gonna ha- and it's funny that, so I, you know, when I am writing, the where I start when I'm working on a draft is never where the actual book ends right. up starting. So I actually incorporated those, like, monster point of views sort of late in the process. Okay. So I originally had opened up with Vi at 13, and then I tried opening up with um, the present day and Lizzie driving around. She was a monster hunter, yes. and, you know, doing her podcast. And I, I had so much fun with her, too. But so I had those two characters and um, and it was kind of later on in the process that I was like, I'm missing something. I, I think I want to try writing something from the monster point of view. Ooh. And I, I had a lot more monster point of view sections and we ended up cutting them. And now I think there's only two in there. But I yeah, love that, though. It added something super special and just extra creepy to the story. <laughs> you know, you're just like, oh, gosh. And I think, too, I was going to ask you about that because, um, you know, there's a couple of twists that happen later on in the game. Um, you know, you mentioned yeah. just how you yeah. construct these stories do you ever do you always know kind of what you want where you want it to end or does the twist sort of come to you as you're writing because I mean (laughs) yeah I have no idea I am I am not a plotter or planner or okay sometimes I I wish I was but I like I dive in and it's just this messy crazy process and I am going all over the place um, I did have, there's, I did have a, one of the big twists sort of early on. Okay. I, it just came to me as I was writing. It took me a little while to get into it, but once I was, I don't know, maybe I was about a third of the way through the book, the first draft. And I was like, wait a second, what if? Oh my gosh. And then once I had that, it was like, it's like this midpoint kind of like revelation. And once I had that, then I, everything started coming together. Um, but yeah, I never know. I never know what's going to happen. I never know how things are going to end. Like in this, I was like, are there really monsters? And who, who is this new character, Iris? Who is she? Where did she mm-hmm. come from? I have no idea. I have to keep writing to find out. And it, that's what makes the writing exciting for me. Oh, I right? love that. Like it's not, if I know, then it's boring and the writing feels like stilted and right. dull. And I love not knowing. So I'm like writing as fast as I can to try to find out what's going to happen I have to next. say that surprises me so much that you're not a planner, though, because the, your stories have so many layers to them. And I feel like it's like you weave together these genres. So there's like the psychological thriller aspect of it. There's sort of a mystery going on. It's horror. Yeah. Um, so how do you do that? <laughs> 
So that's what that's what the second draft is for. Okay. So I write my first draft with no plan whatsoever. So saying I'm not a planner, I guess, is not is not completely true because I'll, I'll write my first draft and it's this messy, yeah. crazy thing. And I lay it all over the floor of my house. I print it out. I've done this with every book. I print it out and lay it chapter by chapter all over the floor of my house. And I start like restructuring it and making notes on it. And then I get into planning mode and I do an outline and I figure out like the plots and I figure out the twists and turns and how to set those up and make sure everything's making sense and is kind of cohesive. And it's especially difficult if, you know, I'm dealing with two timelines or multiple points of view. And this book was kind of complicated because I've got, you know, the two different timelines and points of view and I've got, parts from the point of view of the monster and I've got parts of a true crime book thrown in there right. and I've got parts of the book of monsters that the children write in there too and I had to balance it all and make it sound make it seem like it was going to flow from one one thing to the next because the last thing I wanted to do was have readers pick it up and get really into a section and then be like oh bummer <laughs> I have to go do something yeah you jump back now yeah. there's a book of monsters that's boring you know, you know that's um, that is like that's I think that is a fear whenever there's kind of multiple different timelines going on or storylines and that kind of thing I did not feel like that at all with this I felt like it really went well together um and I think too just you picked really good um uh just I don't know backgrounds for each character so with Lizzie um let's talk about her for a second just her she's the present day uh character who she's kind of a famous podcaster true crime um monster hunter modern day so is was that fun for you to write too or which did you kind of relate to are you a podcast true crime podcast fan or how did you kind of come up with that part of the story um, I do listen to podcasts. I don't listen to a ton. I listened to a lot while I was doing that. And I tried yeah. to find all the monster podcasts right. I could and like, like creepy, <laughs> you know, like things in the woods, like Bigfoot Hunter kind of stuff and listen to those. Um, but I had so much fun. I learned a lot about podcasts and podcasting and sort of immersed yeah. myself in the podcast world. And I, um, and she, so she has this van that she travels around the country in, and I'm obsessed with like van living and really? like, have a little camper. <laughs> and I like in my fantasy life, I would just like leave my job for, I would leave my life forever and like, just go drive around. And, <laughs> but no, I have too many things tying me to like a, a actual house. Uh, so I one day, you never know. <laughs> one day, one day I do have a, we do have a little travel trailer and do a lot of camping Ooh. and traveling. And I'm like, can't we just go on the road well, for It's research um, for your So books. I had fun doing that. <laughs> Exactly. I know. I know. And so Lizzie, like, you know, she's got this little house in North Carolina and then she's spends a lot of her time on the road hunting monsters in this van that she's had customized and she goes around and she has a website and people write in all the time and are like, oh, come check out this creature here in the swamps of Oklahoma or, you know, and she's she's on the road looking for these things and searching them and hunting them down. But she's avoided Vermont her whole life. And um, then finally she realizes she needs to go back to Vermont and kind of face her own past to try to find this monster she's been hunting her whole life who she believes might be her sister right which is like oh yeah. I just kind of I I think what is really cool too is just how it kind of meets in the middle um it really and you never really feel like it's super the tone is very similar with both sides of the story you know it's you've always got this kind of creepier monster underbelly tone for the whole book no matter which timeline you're in yeah. um I found myself actually just like I was just it's it's like it wasn't even jumping too much for my brain I was just like oh this is good I want to know about what's happening in this one and this one um awesome yeah I mean she was a really I love that character um and it was yeah I had fun and I had fun like reading and researching about like and I threw some actual like cryptids some actual like 
pe cryptids people believe in in there for fun and yeah and then i invented some like i i invented the the creature the apparition rattling jane who comes out of this lake yes, in vermont yes and supposedly pulls people down and i had a lot of fun creating her and wondering what her story was and where she came from i would imagine yeah. yeah so rattling jane some of these nicknames for the <laughs> for the folks in the book do those come to you like when you're sleeping or <laughs> <laughs> when do the, those um, names visit you? So usually in odd moments, yeah. usually like when I'm walking the dog or, you know, in the shower, showers are a big one, you know, showers, right. walking, I'd spend a lot of time out walking and I get a lot of ideas. So I always have, you know, I've got my phone. Yes, but I'm also a big pen and paper person. Okay. It's got a little notebook and a pen on me wherever I go. Cause if I like try to remember something the time from the, even if it's like really good and I'm like, Oh, this is good. This is going to change everything. I'll forget it. Right. By the time I get home, unless I, I'm the same way. Unless I actually, write it down yeah <laughs> I feel like it makes it more of a tangible thing <laughs> um, yeah, yeah that is awesome I think that's great so when it I guess when you're writing horror too I'm just thinking for something like this where there are so many different layers to the story and I mean pretty much every genre is kind of twisted and scary do you have to take breaks when you are writing do you kind of and I know you said you spook easily so do you ever just like you're writing and you're like I've got to stop I <laughs> I do scare myself. And when I, you know, when I do in those moments, when I do scare myself, I'm like, Oh, this is good. I should keep going. I, um, yeah, you know, I, I studied, I studied writing in um, college and then for a year in graduate school studying poetry and yeah. you hear over and over, write what you know, write what you know, right. write what you know. But my own personal motto is write what scares you so much so that I actually had it tattooed. On oh my, my God. I love that. As like a constant reminder to like go to the dark places and not turn away from the things that scare me. Cause that's where the good stuff is for me. Right. You know, that's where all the good writing comes from is when I don't turn away and when I don't like turn off the computer and be like, Oh, this is too much. <laughs> I, I get yourself. to like take those fears mm -hmm. and kind of poke at them with sticks and kind of circle around them and ask questions about them and be like, what's up with you? You know, are you real? Yeah. I don't, why am I, why am I afraid of you? Oh my gosh. Are other people afraid of you? Where does this come from? Where does this power come from? Why am I giving you this power, this imaginary thing that maybe isn't imaginary? I don't know. So I would imagine with each book that you write, you probably feel like it's like a growth, you know, you've sort of face new parts of yourself and just different things that you hadn't thought about before creatively um oh, yeah. which oh I just I think that's such a cool thing and that sort of I we always like to ask this question I think this is especially from someone like you who's you've written so many books and you're definitely a very prolific writer um if you could tell yourself one thing before you wrote your first novel that you know now about writing what would it be um it would be to write the book you most want to write. Okay. Write the book you most want to read. I think that's the, the best advice. And that's the advice I give everyone. Write, write the book you most want to read. I spent my, the, my early fiction writing career writing what I thought other people would expect from me mm -hmm. and kind of writing more literary character driven, quieter novels um, that I wasn't all that interested in. And then when I sat down to write my the book that became my first published yeah. novel, Promise Not to Tell, that was actually the fourth book I wrote, I asked myself, I was like, so what do I most want to read? And the answer came back loud and clear, a ghost story. And I was like, yes, I want to write a ghost story. I love creepy stuff. Yeah. I love creepy <laughs> fiction. This is what I like to read. Why is this not what I'm writing? 
So yeah, I wish I'd told myself that back when I was first starting out, but you know, it's been a learning process. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I feel like just from what you've been saying today too, it's just with every single book, you, you kind of come out with a different piece of advice for yourself probably, which is part of the beauty of creative work in general. I think it's very like reflective and it's just, it's such a cool career path to be in. Oh, it is. I feel very lucky. And each book totally, I mean, I know it sounds kind of cliche, but each book really is a journey yeah. and I never know where I'm going to end up and how I'm going to have changed by the end, not just my characters, but me and my yeah. thoughts and my opinions about things and my writing. Right. You know, maybe my writing gets better. Maybe I get better at, one day I'll get better at writing those adult yeah. male characters. <laughs> maybe with your next book <laughs> those men. that you're working on right yeah. now. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I wish that we could have hours to chat. I feel like I want to hang out with you all the time. So <laughs> this has been so much fun. Thank you so much it for coming on. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for having me. This has been a blast. Yeah. Thank you. The time flew by. I know. I, I just really, I'm like, oh my gosh, I wish that we had like a three hour slot right now. I could just hang out. If I'm ever in Vermont, <laughs> Absolutely. you're in Charleston. Come find me. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Oh, well, thank you so much for joining us today, Jennifer. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. I had a, so much fun. Thank you. Of course. You. If you are an author who would like to be featured on the show, check out our submission process on the contact page of charlottemeaterspodcast.com. Please understand that given the number of submissions we receive, we can't respond to every submission or feature everyone who submits, but with the Beyond 300 format, we are featuring more authors in many different ways. You might be interviewed or provide us some audio content for us to play, or participate in an author or marketing talk, or get a shout out for your publication. One way to be sure to get a mention on the show is to submit a 750-word or less blog post to our community blog on a writing or marketing topic. If it's accepted, we may have you on to discuss the content. Just go to charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the community blog for details. All right, now that we're sufficiently spooked uh, by that uh, interview and the idea of that story, uh, we're going to jump into um, uh, one of our two-minute tips from uh, Charlotte Litt. Uh, let's hear what Paul Reale has to say about... Uh, first drafts, and then uh, we're going to talk about that. Hi, I'm Paul Rialli from Charlotte Lit with a two-minute writing tip for Charlotte Readers Podcast. For my many years as a writer and coach, I've developed a list I call the immutable laws of writing. Today is immutable law number four. There are no one draft writers. For any writing that matters, and if you're an obsessive wordsmith like me, for any writing at all, including emails, the journey from idea to publishable piece will include revisions. There are no one-draft writers. Good writing requires rewriting. Writing is a creative act, and creativity is far more than the flash of a great idea. Creativity is the hard work of moving from idea to well-executed solution. We are a society currently obsessed with do it and ship it. Because you can publish a blog post or an entire book or ebook with literally just a few clicks, Many, many people write one draft and consider it done. Click, I'm published. Good for you, but did you know your writing very likely wasn't very good? In case that's not emphatic enough, allow me to beg, please, please, please don't write just one draft and publish. Anything. You're not nearly done. Your name will be on this. Don't you want it to be as good as you can make it? That means you must get back to work, because good writing requires... The hard work of rewriting. Plan to rewrite, revise, edit more than once. Your first draft will be horrible, terrible, very bad, very likely. And that's okay. More than okay, actually. It's expected. 
It's part of the process. There are times when it's necessary to get it right in one take. Blue books for a college exam or writing inside a birthday card. But guess what? If you had the ability to rewrite on those occasions, you would almost certainly get it better the second time, and better still the third time. This may not seem like good news for the emerging writer. You may be wondering, how many drafts then? The best answer I have is, until it's done. And also, not less than five. If revising and rewriting are not something you enjoy, then perhaps writing is not for you, because there are no one-draft writers. For more two-minute tips, listen to the Beyond 300 episodes of Charlotte Reader's podcast, or visit charlottelit.org slash tips. I just realized that uh, we <laughs> we teed this up as there are no first draft writers in, <laughs> instead of no one draft writers. The mm-hmm. uh, fact of the matter is, as Paul points out, there probably are some first draft writers out there who put first drafts up with their names on it uh, and they sort of die you know, a quick death. Uh, let's talk a little bit about this. Uh, there are no one draft writers. And what Paul's getting at, I think, is that those that really spend their time on their craft uh, don't stop with the with the one draft. Mark, you've been doing this for a long time. You t- teach students about uh, writing and so forth. Uh, what do you think about Paul's message? I think I agree with Paul's message, although I also think it's possible to revise too much. Mm. Um, something that uh, I'm not sure Paul would agree with, but there is something about the immediacy of a phrase, uh, draft of a story or a poem when you're when you're in the moment and you're caught up in the in the presence of the story that a certain at least for me fluidity of language occurs that when i start to tinker with it and try to think oh well i might offend somebody with this word or maybe this is a little bit too this way a little bit too that way i lose some of that zest of that first draft so when you're revising yes i i revise all the time um but don't revise the passion out of your writing you make sure that you still keep that energy that oftentimes is what drives the first to use your uh, phrase that you accidentally used the first draft sometimes has more energy than the fifth draft the fifth draft has more polish but it sometimes the, the polish sometimes takes the edges off of things that's what polish does it takes the edges and sometimes i like the edge sometimes i like I like having that edge. So, yes, I totally agree with Paul. We need to revise. It's an important part of writing. But think about what you're changing while you're revising, and do you really want to change it? Because sometimes you don't. Yeah, you heard it here first. Mark doesn't mind offending people if it's zesty and has an edge. So, you know, yeah. (laughs) No, I get it. Uh, Sarah, your thoughts? Yeah, well, I I think Mark makes a great point. Um, sometimes you do lose a little bit of that authenticity in your kind of original voice if you try to revise too hard. So it's good to keep a little bit of that freshness. And also just for practical reasons, like if I'm writing a blog post, I'm not going to put as much time and effort into it as I would with a novel or a screenplay or something like that, because if I do, I'll never get anything done. Um, you have to kind of pick your battles. But but I do think that overall, Paul's point is definitely correct, that you need to revise, you need to rewrite, no matter how smart you are, how great your ideas are, you're going to need to have multiple drafts. Um, and that's sort of simultaneously depressing and comforting for writers, I think. Like we all sort of wish we could live in this world where we would just write, sit down and, you know, words of genius would flow from the pen uninterrupted. And then you send your amazing, 
you know, masterpiece off into the world and you become a literary icon in one day, but <laughs> it doesn't work that way. So it's also nice to know when you're, when you've written a first draft and at least for me, almost inevitably, it doesn't live up to what the idea is in my head and I know it can be better. And it's nice to be able to remind myself that that's normal and that's okay. And it is just a first draft. It's a work in progress. This is not a finished product yet. And that revising is a part of the process. I think you want, I, I frequently write guest columns for the Charlotte Observer and other publications, and they usually have pretty strict word counts. Um, so when I write something, I just write what I want to say. And then I hit the word count feature on my <laughs> computer, and I realize that I'm 300 words over. Right. The process of ca- carving out, taking out 300 words always makes my writing better because mm. um, I think, okay, well, what I know what point I want to make, but what point, what words do I have here that I could, I could take out and still keep my point going. Sometimes uh, I wrote something recently. It took me um, that had strict word count on it. It took me almost the whole day to carve out as many words as I needed to carve out, but boy, uh, the finished product was much stronger because of it. So sometimes I think, in my work as an editor, I sometimes think the best advice I can do tell somebody is, is say, Landis, this is great, um, but it's a little too long. Can you cut out 200 words? Mm. Um, and uh, that to me is a writing tip. It's like, I don't even need to read what you wrote. I'll just say, Landis, this is great. Cut out 200 words. And then you'll struggle over it for a while. And what you what you'll come up with is tighter, crisper. That's that's a really good observation. Um, I was recently you know, working on a flash fiction piece, and there was a 500-word limit, and the first draft came in at about 800 words, and I thought, wow, how am I going to do this? And then I, start, I started tweaking it over the next few days, and when it got down under the word count, everything I wanted to say was still there, but it was, it was better, you know? So mm-hmm. I think, uh, and I guess as to Paul's point, maybe... Maybe we don't know how many drafts is the right amount of drafts, but it's somewhere between slacker and perfectionist, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> somewhere, because perfectionism can also do cause you to do what Mark says as well, which is revise too much. I can remember on my first book, I re-revised this couple of paragraphs so many times that at one point it started looking familiar again, and I went back and looked at the very first draft, and it was the same as the very last draft. And so, <laughs> oh my goodness. you advised in a circle. And, that, that was, and then I said, "Hey, Landis, you're not a lawyer anymore. You don't have to be a perfectionist. You know, just just write." Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, that's that's great observations. Thanks, Paul, for that uh, tip and uh, for those writers out there. Uh, stay with it. Uh, maybe cut your words down a little bit uh, with a, a self-imposed limit, uh, and it'll make it sharper. So, uh, we, we're going to jump now to. Uh, author feature uh, here in Act 3. The author is Nicholas Graham. Um, I interviewed Nicholas. Uh, The book is The Judas Case. It's uh, very interesting, and you'll be able to tell by the accent uh, that Nicholas is not from these parts. uh, He grew up in the north of England, um, and he is living there now, and uh, that's where he was when we interviewed him. One connection we talk about on the podcast, uh, that is to Davidson College, is that when I was in school in the 70s, I think uh, there was somebody in my class, and they, they won the College Bowl. If you all remember the College Bowl from those years. And the team they were up against uh, was the team that uh, Nicholas Graham was on from from London. And so he got to spend a little time 
uh, Ed Davidson, so we talked a little bit about that. But his book is very interesting. Um, it's uh, Yehuda from Kerowith was the most able undercover agent that the Temple Guard had ever produced. Uh, and after 18 months of meticulous preparation infiltrating the entourage of a Galilean holy man and would-be king of Israel, uh, <coughs> Yeshua from Nazareth, uh, he came to Jerusalem at Passover and pulled off his greatest coup. Two days later, he was dead. What went wrong? So interesting look at the fact that uh, th this is um, investigating uh, Judas's life as if Judas worked for the temple guard and has sort of infiltrated uh, Jesus's group uh, over a period of two to three years, um, but then suddenly died um, after the death of Jesus, and they think maybe he was murdered. So, and so interesting sort of take. The thing about the book that's so interesting is he does such a great job uh, with the time period and, and what it was like to to live in, in that first century. So without any further ado, we're going to uh, play that uh, interview, and then we'll be back for Act 4. Uh, Nicholas, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Yeah, congratulations on the book. Thank you. It's been a, a, a long time coming, but very pleased that it's uh, now published and available. Yep. Yeah, and I know our listeners uh, can tell probably that you're not from uh, North or South Carolina, given your accent. So uh, tell, tell us a little bit about your home. Um, I live in the north of England, uh, just south of the Scottish border in a little seaside village called St. Bees. Um, near a lot of uh, your listeners will probably have heard of the English Lake District. We're, we're just on the coast, um, uh, very, very close by the beautiful World Heritage Site of the lakes. Good scotch in that area, right? Uh, we do. Uh, they, they even make whiskey, though they're not allowed to call it Scotch <laughs> whiskey, in the Lake District. But there, there is a distillery locally, uh, which makes very good whiskey, but not Scotch. Uh, I understand. I understand. There's yeah. that rivalry still. Uh, Absolutely. And you've also got uh, a connection to my alma mater, Davidson College. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, I have. Um, many, many years ago, um, I did my undergraduate degree at Cambridge University. Um, and in Britain, we have a television quiz show for students called University Challenge, which is the, um, the, the British franchise of a long-running American institution, which I'm sure you've heard of, called College Bowl. Um, and the year, one year, we, our, our team, won the British competition for University Challenge. And the uh, television companies had the bright idea of uh, staging a world championship uh, the british <laughs> champions against the american champions of college bowl who that year happened to be from davidson college this was in 1979 1980 yeah that was my that was my class i had some classmates who were what? in that yeah really you yes. james gibbert yes. and tom ruby the late tom ruby and tim newcomb and ed, ed trumbull yeah, um, yeah, yeah. No, James yeah. Javert. James Javert was on my freshman hall in, at uh, in 1975. Well, oh, <laughs> wow, it's a very small world. It's, it's anyway, small. <laughs> uh, the, the well, James is involved in this story as it yeah. happens because he um, uh, the the this was in the days when College Bell was a, ne a network television uh, event and and had a lot of sponsorship money behind it, and the prize for um, the win for both teams was that a member of their of one team would uh, be furnished with a scholarship to go and study at the American at the other institution, and I was lucky enough to uh, have the honour and privilege of spending a year as a student at Davidson College. And James Gibbert 
had the <laughs> delight of spending a year in Cambridge at my college, yeah. Sydney, Sussex. So, yes. That's, that's, that's great. And you studied under uh, Tony Abbott, who's, uh, who'd recently passed away. He was a great in, professor indeed, at Davidson. Yes. I, I was lucky enough to make my first faltering steps in creative writing um, yeah. under the tutelage of, uh, of Tony Abbott, who I have to say uh, guided me with great wisdom and even greater patience in those yeah. days. Uh, but it was a wonderful, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. To, he was to such be a gentleman and such a really great was. professor yeah. and also just a very talented poet as well. So. Indeed, absolutely. All yeah. right, well, look, uh, enough uh, Davis and Wildcat stuff. Let's uh, jump into uh, <laughs> why we're here today. The uh, The Judas Case uh, is your latest novel. It's, uh, and we're talking, you know, it, it, we're talking about Judas, one of Jesus' disciples known as Yehuda from Kerouath. I may have butchered that, but... Uh, I think Yehuda from Kerouath is, is that's pretty good. Yes, <laughs> and and Judas is often seen as the villain, uh, but retired spymaster Solomon Elides, who's called back by the temple guard to investigate the death of Judas, believes Judas is doing his job, and something went wrong. And the questions in the Judas case: uh, What went wrong with Judas' mission? Why did he die? How did he die? And you know, before we get into that a little bit, I'm just curious, uh, you know. Nicholas, what led you to want to write a historical crime fiction novel set in the time of Jesus, and in particular around the time of his crucifixion? You could have picked anything. I could have picked anything. Um, a, a lot of different strands came together in this. Um, first of all, I'd, I'd wanted to um, write a historical fiction about the life of or, or times of, of, of Jesus with a background to the Gospels for a very, very long time. And uh, periodically over the years, I've pummeled my brains as to ways of doing this in an interesting, creative and, and different fashion. Um, the idea that you could um, find a different way of presenting very, very familiar material seemed to me to be absolutely at the centre of the problem that any historical novelist grapples with, which is how do you tell a story that peels back the layers of what we think we know about a historical circumstance and present it in a way that is vivid, that is real, that is lived experience in which none of the, char none of the characters know what will happen next, though the reader might expect or think that they know. And it seemed to me that the, the life of Jesus presents the greatest single challenge to anybody who is writing historical fiction in that respect, precisely because we have 2,000 years worth of accumulated uh, belief, understanding, and uh, call it theology uh, uh, or, or whatever around it. Whereas to actually peel those layers of the onion back and make it lived experience was an enormous challenge. And the idea that came to me quite unexpectedly and literally out of the blue and just absolutely possessed me with, yes, this is a story. When I thought, well, what if Judas had been working for the temple police all along? <laughs> this is, this uh. leads right, right into my question. I had a couple of down the line here, but I'm, we're just going to jump yeah. right in. You know, how did you come up with the idea to explore the, the, the story of Jesus from the often untold story of Judas and to plant this seed that Judas may have worked for the temple guard and been murdered, you know? Well, it, it, it came out, it, to be honest, it came out of the blue. It was just one of those moments where you think, hang on, what if? <laughs> now, I, I later discovered that actually it's, 
it's not an original idea. I'm not. I'm. I'm certainly not clever enough to have been the first person to have thought that. <laughs> uh, the great Israeli writer Amos Oz suggests this. He he wrote a novel called Judas. It's not a historical novel. It's about um, c contemporary Israel. But in an aside, he he speculates about the possibility that uh, that Judas may have been a, a, a double agent or, <laughs> or a sleeper agent. And th this, again, seemed to me to suddenly bring in all sorts of interesting possibilities for the fiction. Um, I'm a great admirer of the fiction of John le Carre a uh, great British author who died a couple of years ago, who, who wrote um, novels about spies in the Cold War. And that immediately raised the possibility. And you start thinking, well, OK, what if this is actually a story about people caught up in a colonial situation where the, um, the, 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 the Romans they're never referred to as the Romans in the Judas case. They're our very good friends, right. the Romans, um, uh, are, are uh, running with an agenda completely of their own. And the, 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 the temple police, uh, the people who are expected to keep good order and to police things of a religious nature, um, find themselves caught between two very difficult forces. One. Uh, the force of popular belief and um, uh, and religious experience, and the other, uh, the, the the force of the prevailing political establishment. And if if I can just do, do a very quick digression on that, one of the other seeds of um, that particular thought was a conversation I had many many years ago when I was at Davidson with somebody who was talking about. We were talking about the Vietnam War. Um, and uh, the, the person I was talking with were, was talking about the French involvement in Vietnam before the American involvement back in the 1950s and talking to, uh, said that he'd heard a, a, an interview with one of the French paratroopers who famously had a last stand at Dian Bien Phu in the 1950s against the then Viet Cong. Um, and they, it, one of the paratroopers was asked, look, you're a devout Catholic. You're, if, if you'd been a sentient, there's a famous um, novel written about the French involvement called The Centurions. And he was asked, you're a devout Roman Catholic. If you had been a centurion in the first century AD in Palestine and you were policing Jesus and his disciples, what would you have done? And apparently he said, without pause or hesitation, I'd have had him quietly assassinated while he was still up in Galilee. And this seemed to me to open up a whole new mm. way of thinking about what are very familiar events, apparently very familiar events, and seeing if we could look at them through a completely different set of eyes and set of assumptions. Yeah, and that leads into, just to provide a little context here for mm. the time period, uh, for those who you know, miss some Sunday school classes or maybe not be uh, that studied up on the, on the history there. Um, talk a little bit about why, it, you know, the, the, the temple would want to possibly put a sleeper agent, you know, in the midst of this uh, rising star uh, at that time period. Well, I, even those of us who don't remember too much from Sunday school right. will probably uh, uh, 
be comfortable with and remember the characterization of Jesus as being somebody who is in a state of tension with the religious establishment of mm -hmm. his time, shall we say. Um, and the thought there was that if I created a world that was a world of spies and police agents and the undercover, then it was reasonable to expect that the Romans would have responsibility for political matters, but the temple and the religious establishment um, in Jerusalem at the time would have responsibility for relig religious matters. Now, mm -hmm. given that Jesus um, is not only a, uh, a wandering rabbi and a miracle worker and a teacher, he is also claiming to be king of Israel or a candidate king of Israel. That would make him um, a, uh, a candidate for attention both from the religious establishment and the political establishment. One, one of the strands of um, narrative in the novel is the fact that um, the agent of uh, the temple police, Judas Yehuda, um, realizes that he's by no means the only person uh, taking a close professional interest in what Jesus is up to and what the disciples are doing. Yeah, and it's interesting because you could have taken this from the standpoint of sort of a thriller where you embed Judas amongst them and, and you sort of follow him in a linear fashion, but you made this more of a mystery where this uh, former temple guard is called out of retirement uh, and he's brought back and uh, his protege, who happened to be Judas, has died and uh, they don't know why exactly and he doesn't know why exactly. So he starts to investigate and he sort of build it as a mystery. Did you go in, in, in sort of writing this? Did you go through various versions of how you're going to tell this story? Um, the, the idea of it being a mystery and then the investigation of a murder or suicide, who right. knows, who knows? Um, yeah. uh, it was um, really there very much from the beginning. Okay. Uh, one of the first things I did was go back and reacquaint myself with the books of the the New Testament, the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles, uh, and also uh, a lot of the writings from that period and afterwards that didn't make it into the canonical gospels. And what you notice very quickly is that every account of Judas's death is slightly different and nobody can agree on exactly what happened to him and, mm -hmm. and where and why and how. So the idea of um, taking a, a hugely experienced master detective, um, which is a common fictional trope, think of Poirot mm -hmm. and Maigret, a uh, common fictional trope, and setting him the task of working out what actually happened to um, his protege, well, one of his one of his disciples, one of his mm -hmm. followers on his last case, um, seemed like a, a very good way into the uh, uh, unraveling the mystery. Well, I've got some more questions, but I think you mentioned uh, the body, so maybe you've got you've got a little reading here. I think that's going to take us to the scene. Yeah. Okay. So, yes. So I, yeah, I'd love to do that. That's great. Here's a short extract from the Judas case. Um, it is quite close to the start, and um, our great detective Solomon Eliades uh, has been called back from his vineyard to investigate one final case: the death of Yehuda, his great protege. Um, but he's been given an assistant to help him. Uh, this is a pious young man from the temple guard whose name is Saul. And in the best traditions of detective duos, they're arguing with each other. 
I grasped Saul by the arm. Cover up your tunic. You're frightening people. We've got work to do. Let's examine the body, shall we? Must I allow myself to be defiled? Yes, I thought to myself, you must. This is the service. What did you expect? You have a tablet and a stylus? Of course. Then use them. Take down everything I say word for word while I examine the body. That will be helpful. I walked up to the tree. Fifteen years and the violence of death had changed his appearance, but it was him. Uh, of that I had no doubt. The same red hair, now streaked grey at the sides, the same freckles, still visible beneath the dried blood that caked his face. But his eyes were a mess where the birds had been at them, and his cheeks, chin, neck and ears were swollen with black blood down to the line where the rope cut into his skin. It was the engorged face of a man who had suffocated under his own weight. A vile way to die. No one who understood that would have chosen it, and he had understood about death. Flies darted across his face. I looked up at him, bloody, beaten, encrusted, choked. Then the body turned in the wind and swung away from us, and I wept. When I mastered myself, I spoke in Greek. Are you ready? Saul scowled. I began. First day of the week, 17 Nisan, year 48 of the temple. My name is Solomon Eliades, temporarily attached to the service of the temple guard in Jerusalem and commanded to investigate these matters. These are my true words describing what I see and hear. The body is hanging from a tree in the fields of the pottery workers about a Shabbat's journey beyond the city walls. The tree is a common shuttle tree and stands 100 paces from the roadside to the south. I hereby identify the body as that of Yehuda from Kerioth, also an officer of the service. Silence. I looked round. The stylus and tablet had dropped from my assistant's hands and were lying in the mud. Saul was staring in appalled fascination at Yehuda's face. The body, turning on its rope as I had been speaking, was now facing him. Close observation, the first element of any investigation. Look, Saul, I said gently, you'll need to get used to this. It's really him, isn't it? He said, half in a whisper, half in horror. Yehuda from Kerioth, he helped us arrest that Galilean magician. He picked up his stylus and the tablet, from which he began to wipe the mud with fastidious care. Philo said you were there. What happened? What did he tell you? He said it was a difficult operation. Saul looked away from the body and stared down. You can tell me, I said. But I was too soon. He chose silence. Very well. Let us begin. Thank you. That's really good. Well, you know, there's a, there's a uh, there's a person in the New Testament named Saul who becomes Paul. Is um, well, it, Saul, Saul was very deliberately chosen. We don't know a great deal about the 
early life and career of Paul of Tarsus, um, uh, other than what he tells us, that he was from Tarsus. Um, but we do know he was called Saul at one point, and there is a theory that he worked for the religious police at some point. So I, I will leave it at that, and people can make people can make up their own <laughs> minds about the, the character as he is portrayed. Yeah, that's great. Well, it's gotten a lot of good reviews. Um, I was introduced to you uh, for this book by uh, Chris Arverson, who... Um, you know, wrote a nice review talking about it being a fabulous historical crime fiction read and the characters being compelling, with that, which I found as well. And also James Tabor, um, uh, who's done a lot of history, and he says there are many attempts to create fictional accounts around the life and times of Jesus, but few stand up to historical scrutiny. And he was drawn to yours because of the historical scrutiny. And, and that was sort of leads to my question here, and that is, you know, there are a lot of terms here that relate to that time, the tablet, the stylus, the Shabbat's journey. I mean, look, you wouldn't think, nobody really thinks in terms of, you know, a mm -hmm. Shabbat journey, right? But you're you're pulling from the time, and then you didn't use the name Jesus. You uh, used, Yeshua. Yeshua from Yeshua Nazareth. Of, yeah. uh, right. So I'm thinking, were you just trying to get us to go back and do a little uh, studying here oh, to make sure we No, I, 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 I hope I'm trying to get people to... <laughs> because I found it... I, <laughs> No, I really did. I, found, I said, I need to go study up here. And, and I found myself Googling terms as I'm reading the book here, which was okay. I mean, I think you, yeah. you should trust your readers because there are going to be some that are going to come in fully formed in that regard. But uh, that um, must it, have taken it, a lot of research. It right? did require a lot of research. And I've tried to make it as, um, well, as authentic as I can. And I mean, I have to say a, a big thanks to Professor James Tabor, who, whose writings and work mm -hmm. on... Um, uh, uh, the life and times of Jesus and Paul and first century Judaism uh, were absolutely invaluable in terms of uh, introducing a, another dimension to my understanding of uh, of that period. But I, I think I need to stress that um, what I'm really hoping with that sort of um, uh, slightly to one side way of looking at things and just jolting people's expectations. Um, so it's Yeshua, not Jesus, it's Yehuda, not um, uh, Judah, uh, uh, Judas, it's Shimon, not Simon Peter, um, is to um, get people to turn the page and say, what next? What more can I find out? What, 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 what else is further down the line here? If some people do, do, do go off and, and pick, uh, uh, you know, books from the shelves or, or from uh, Google on uh, on the basis of, of this and say, oh, I would like to find out more about this. Um, but I, I think anybody with a, a passing acquaintance with the New Testament uh, and uh, a, a bit of the background would, would not be, but would, would certainly not be struggling with anything in this. It, I hope it draws people in and gives them the information that they, they need to keep on turning the page. At least that's what people tell me it does. Yeah. I found it very interesting, and particularly as it related to, because I'm a fan of mysteries and thrillers and, and write the mystery too, and I, I was really intrigued by you know getting into the life of the temple because it, it felt like a very shadowy environment with lots of layers to it, you know, with higher ups uh, that you had yes. to you, you couldn't cross this threshold without being a certain stature or something. Is a lot of that based upon uh, what, what's available uh, to you? Yes, yes, it is. Um, one, one of the great 
sources of historical information about first century Judaism is the work of a, uh, a Jewish writer called Josephus, who was a friend of the Emperor Vespasian. Uh, and he wrote two uh, monumental books, one a uh, history of his people and the other um, a account of the Jewish war, as he calls it, the war between the Romans and Israel in the late 60s AD, in which he participated. Um, and he gives a detailed description of the uh, of the layout and uh, arrangement of, uh, the, of Herod the Great's temple building, the last remnants of which still exist in Jerusalem in the form of the Western Wall. Um, and he, one of the things that he, uh, he he points out and which I make use of in uh, a twist of the plot late in the novel is the fact that uh, outside one of the courtyards of uh, one of the inner courtyards of, of the temple, there is a large sign uh, with the words, uh, no, nobody uh, who is not a Jew may pass beyond this point. If you do so, only you will be responsible for your death, um, which is quite a intimidating and uh, terrifying prospect. Yeah. So it, it, uh, it reminded me of that scene in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, where only the penitent may pass. Only the that, penitent may that's, pass. Yeah, that's it. But <laughs> but having a sign like that, but uh, gives you all sorts of interesting possibilities for structuring a chase scene, shall we say? <laughs> exactly. It's a stop here at yeah, your peril. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, well, a couple couple of writing life questions to wrap yeah. up. Um, um, if you could tell your younger writing self something of value that had you known it uh, back then, it might have. Uh, helped you earlier on, what would it be? Oh, um, your first idea is rarely your best. Um, mm. It isn't always the case that the second or third one is either, but but the, the, the more you worry to death what looks like a good idea, the better it ends up being, I think. <laughs> yeah. That's, that that that's would be advice. that would, that would be one that would be one thing. Uh, the other thing I'd say um, for anybody who is contemplating writing historical fiction, um, immerse yourself in the period that you're looking at, and if it's before the Industrial Revolution, um, learning to ride a horse is really helpful because it really makes you understand quite literally the point of view of your characters and the way that most of them are probably going to be seeing the world and getting around uh, mm. and transporting themselves. So that, that, that would be the other piece of advice. Well, what did you have to learn to ride to go all the way back to the first century? Oh, well, ah, many, many years ago, uh, one of my, uh, before the, uh, the Judas book, uh, I, I did some uh, writing about uh, King Arthur and uh, part of the uh, the sort of uh, method writing research for that was to learn to ride a horse and try okay, and understand yeah. how, try and understand how dark age cavalry would have behaved there you go. So. Well, tell, tell us a little about what's next. Uh, is this going to be a series? Uh, I'm very much hoping that it will be. I'm in the process of drafting the next Solomon Eliade's adventure, which takes uh, it's called Solomon's Vineyard. Um, there is a short preview of it. Uh, at the end of the Judas case, um, and it takes Solomon's story on. It also takes Saul's story on, and the stories of some of the other characters, Zenobia, Solomon's wife, and Nicanor, his friend, the doctor, 
um, into the world of um, the Acts of the Apostles and the beginnings of the development of what we look back on as the early church. So I'm hoping that we'll be able to do a series of um, uh, detective thrillers set against the developing background of the first century, um, ending up, I hope, eventually with um, the uh, war between the Romans and the Jews in the late seventh decade, 60 something AD, and the destruction of the temple. Um, uh, events that we, the events between 30 AD and 70 AD seems to me are events of profound and stunning importance, and we are still dealing with their consequences in the world that we live in today. Right. Well, listeners, it's a, it's a fun book. It's a well-researched book, uh, the Judas case. And, uh, you know, you have, when you have a tagline, uh, about secrets from the past and the search for an inconveniently missing body, then, and everybody knows what we're talking about there. <laughs> Put, put them in danger. <laughs> yes. it's, it's like, wait a minute, this is a, we're turning this thing on its head a little bit here and trying to figure out it from a different angle. So had a lot of fun with this, uh, Nicholas, and uh, wish you all the best with it and the series. And thank you for being a part of Charlotte Reader's Podcast. La- Landis, thank you very much. I'm absolutely delighted. It's been great fun. Love talking to you. Thank you. We have a newsletter called Beyond 300, and we'd love to have you sign up. This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. You can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts, leandiswade.com, saraharcherwrites.com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time. All right, listeners, hope you enjoyed that. Uh, we're back with uh, Act 4. This is, uh, we're going to be uh, taking uh, the last third um, of a blog post I wrote about helpful articles about the writing and the business of writing on Charlotte Reader's Podcast Community Blog. This is part three. And for those of you listening, um, this is a way if you'd like to uh, us to talk about you on the podcast, um, you know, submit a 750-word or less uh, blog post uh, to the podcast. Go to our website. You can find out how to do that. Uh, we'll put you in the newsletter. We'll mention you on the podcast, and we'll use it as a jumping-off point to, to talk about writing and the business of writing. But there were a number of these that uh, happened before we started that uh, process with Beyond 300 of actually putting uh, your voices on here by performing your blog post, and uh, we were just putting up the blogs and putting them in our newsletters. And so the last couple of episodes, uh, we, we, we talked about the first 20. We're going we're gonna to dive into the uh, 10 others, and uh, just so you know, all of these are accessible on our community blog at the Charlotte Readers podcast site under Community Voices. You can go there and you can scroll through and you can pick any of these to read. Hopefully you'll find something that helps you in your writing or your marketing. Um, But we're going to go through, we're going to tell you just uh, briefly about each one, Uh, maybe read a little excerpt from each one, and then we might riff on it. And uh, I'm going to start with uh, the blog post by Paul Attaway called The Importance of Readers, Requests, and Reviews. Now, this particular article explores the value of good online reviews and how, when writing them, readers don't have to write a literary book review. Uh, the excerpt is, what makes a good review? One that is authentic and not paid for. The review does not have to be long. The best ones say what the reader liked about the book. Quite simply, reviews are the most trusted form of advertising. Now, Paul's point here, as I've seen before, is people ask me sometimes, well, you know, I just don't know what to say when I go on, 
you know, the online site about the book. And my response is, well, just say what you feel about the book. You know, did you, did you like it? Did you enjoy character? Did, you know, did, did it ring true? Did it not ring true? So I think it's a very good message. Uh, I don't know if y'all have any thoughts about this, but uh, uh, if you do, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. And it also kind of applies to um, writers giving feedback to each other, like before the review stage. Sometimes people feel like, oh, well, I, you know, I, I'm not a writer myself, or I'm not that experienced. So what do I have to contribute? My, my feedback is not going to be helpful. But reactions are always helpful, even if they're just sort of your unfiltered, this is what I like, this is what I didn't like, this is what caught my attention, or maybe where I got bored. Um, you know, that's how people read. They, they read with that sort of emotional reaction and immediate attention to just how they're, how they're feeling as they read a book. Um, so that sort of feedback is always helpful, I think, and always valuable. I think sometimes um, when writers ask a friend to read their book, um, you have to be careful of their uh, emotional response, you know, so it's hard when somebody says, well, um, you know, we're really good friends, but, you know, uh, I think the first half of your book is really boring. Um, uh, yeah, know, don't put that not, Don't put that in the online review, please. But <laughs> Yeah, that, that, that ends up becoming kind of a little deflating and yeah. actually damaging to one's friendship. So one, you need to be careful in those kind of contexts to... Um, to value your friendship and and really what when somebody wants feedback in the form of a review or something that you're going to post as a review or something along those lines um they want constructive feedback they would they they don't want just a pat on the back and saying sarah that's fantastic you know you're the best writer since 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 a hemingway or something <laughs> but um but um but on the other hand um so, you know, make suggestions. But, you know, I've been teaching writing for 40, 45 years uh, in different ways. And what I always do when I'm reading a thesis or a paper, I always, always start off with what's good about it. I always say, you did a great job with such and such. And then if there's problems, you know what I do? I don't talk about every single problem. Mm. I talk about, as far as I can tell, this is probably the most serious problem with this this story. So I will just focus on that one thing. I don't focus on everything that's wrong because it's deflating after a while. So and furthermore, you made a mistake here. And then on page two, you made a mistake here. And on, on the bottom of page two, you made another problem over here. And you know, then after that, the person's just ready to give up. It's not, um, it's not constructive. Yeah, um, yeah. It's destructive, really. I, I think that's good advice, particularly when you're giving feedback to someone. Um, and, you know, on the online side, when you're you know, after the book is all edited and you've had all that feedback and it's out there and you know, you're putting it out there and you ask people if they've read your book to leave a review. I think what you know, Paul is talking about there is just, uh, you know, just put something up that, uh, that you feel comfortable doing. And, and don't do this as an author, please. Don't ask people to leave five-star reviews. You know, mm -hmm. Tell them to leave you honest reviews and don't be offended if they leave you a three, four, or five. Now, if they leave you a one, they're probably not you know, as good a friend as you thought. Thought they, thought they were. <laughs> but uh, the other thing is, it's not friends either. I mean, Amazon will actually, and these other online sites, if they sense that, you know, your 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 mother, your father, your friends, and everybody are the ones leaving the reviews, then they might take them down. So, But this is just if somebody in the community has read your book and they say, I'd like to leave a review, how do I do it? You just say, well, just go to the site and uh, leave a review. Just just make sure it's an honest review, however you feel. I, it, it won't hurt my feelings. I just I appreciate you reading the book. That's kind of 
the way it goes. So. Yeah, and even the the number of reviews you get can be helpful too, even if they're not all positive. Just having more reviews kind of you know puts you forward in the algorithms online. So reviews are always helpful. For it's writers. actually better to have reviews on your site that are not all five star reviews. It's mm-hmm. better to have some twos, threes, fours, and fives. You know, because then it looks more authentic. It doesn't look like you're out there, you know, chasing reviews. So. All right, so uh, you're up, sir. Yeah, so our next post is Creating Silence to Let Your Writing Speak by Tessa Afskar. Um, and in this blog, she explores her thoughts on writing and how a key component of her process is the quiet time that helps her writing flourish. Um, and she talks about how she means truly quiet time, you know, not not necessarily scrolling through so- social media or reading or doing, you know, things like that where you're kind of taking content into your brain, but just time where you can really let your mind be open and sort of receive things and, and just think in a quiet space um, and how important that is to her process. And she gives some good tips in there for, for how to read and how to revise. Um, The excerpt we have here is creativity requires quiet time, a rested mind that hasn't been bombarded with internal or external stimulation. Those silent stretches are part of my writing process. I don't always enjoy them, but they are necessary for my mind to work the way it was designed to do. And it's very important to respect that design, work with it rather than try to force it to operate in a way it wasn't meant to do. Um, And I think this is really great advice. I know for me, a lot of times those quiet times are the moments where I get ideas for my writing, whether it's, you know, doing the dishes or driving back and forth to someplace I've been a million times or taking a shower, whatever those sort of tasks are where you're kind of on autopilot and you don't have to think that hard about what you're doing and you're letting your brain just have that space to, to be open and to kind of wander a bit. Um, for me, that's really essential to my writing process and that helps with my creativity a lot. How about you, Mark? I, I I agree with everything Sarah just said. I think quiet time is so important. Um, but, you know, we live in a culture where we f- fill up our days with all sorts of input, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, social media obsessions that people have. Um, so uh, for me, the quiet time that's most important to me is when I take our dog for a walk, which mm-hmm. I do three or four or five times a day. As far as our dog is concerned, I should be doing it seven or eight or nine or ten times a day. <laughs> but, um, but you know, I don't put any little ear things in my ears, and I just kind of am in the moment, and I'm walking along and um, see sights that I've seen hundreds and hundreds of times. But somehow or another, in the presence of the dog and in the presence of the outdoors, Thoughts come to me. I start thinking about things that, uh, without any real structure to it, but it it it, it is, it is. Um, you know, I'm not tempted. I don't carry a cell phone. I know that bothers people, but I don't. Um, so I'm never tempted to check to see whether or not somebody has said something nice about me or something. <laughs> um, but I'm just kind of in the moment, and uh, and I like to uh, pick up on Sarah's point. There's things sometimes come on, come come to me in in in, in those uh, uh, in those quiet moments. Um, but I like to do it. I like to do it outdoors. I like you know in the presence of my dog uh, or our dog. It's not just she's just not my dog. Um, uh, to me, that's it's different for different people. But um, mm. but that's the best time for me. Another thing is, I think a lot when I cook. I'm I'm a cook all the time. I do all, most of the cooking in our family. Um, but while I'm cooking and doing something that I've done many times, I don't really have to think about it while I'm doing it. You know, make sure I don't chop off my finger or anything. But, um, but um, 
thoughts just come to me in that context too sometimes. Yeah. So we'd say, uh, listeners, after you're through listening to Charlotte's podcast on your walk, you can take your earbuds out and do what Mark does, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> after, after you're done there. Uh, all right. So, Mark, you're up with the next one. Okay. So my feature that I'm dealing with here is called Eight Tips for Eight Months of Editing by Elaine Kelly. I think this is uh, interesting because it uh, ties in so much to uh, the talk, the discussions we've been having about um, revising, and this is certainly in self-editing, and this uh, blog post by Elaine Kelly certainly de deals with it. Description of the post uh, goes like this. This article offers eight specific things to focus on during the self-editing process. What writers might look for when tackling them head on. The excerpt reads, plot. My first draft seemed like a series of anecdotes, so I changed it so that each sentence moved forward, either the plot or the character arc. I created a chart showing which chapters had the main character making progress towards her goal and which chapters had her struggling with a crisis. My chart revealed where I needed to add a crisis and what to subtract from the final enumerant. So I think it's a really, um, her point I think is a, is, uh, is a good one. And uh, my wife is a writer, as, as you know, and uh, she has charts. She has, she's obsessed <laughs> with this thing called a W chart. Uh, there are W charts all over her house. Um, but it, you know, where she tracks the, uh, yeah. the pace of the novel and, and I, um, I like the phrase that she includes here, you know, where you need to add a crisis. It's like, it's like, you know, in real life, we like to say, well, I don't especially like crises. But right, um, right. in fiction, you know, sometimes you go, oh, it's time for a crisis. Got to come up with a crisis here. Um, it was an interesting yeah. thing. I, I remember Nancy Northcott, uh, your wife, talking about that W when I interviewed her on the podcast. I think the idea is that uh, at the top of the W, things are good on the left. When the W goes down, uh, things are bad, then they go back up again, then they go down and they're bad again. So it's this whole <laughs> evolution of a crisis, almost like a roller coaster to a peak and then back to the valley. But, uh, your thoughts, sir? Yeah, I mean, I think there are some great points here, and it kind of ties into what Mark was talking about earlier about um, how you often need to cut things when you're revising. A lot of writers overwrite and sometimes thinking not just about cutting on the line level, but also looking at the plot and thinking about where are there moments that aren't truly moving the story or the character forward in some way and how can I maybe speed those up to get to the parts where there is you know a crisis or some kind of important moment um, is a good way of looking at it so that's, that's a very good tip yeah so all right next one is Crossing the Rift uh, by Joseph Bethanti I think he was at one time the poet laureate from North Carolina uh, his article focuses on what you get when many voices step in to offer their poetic perspectives on an important event in human history in this case it was 9-11 uh, here's the excerpt because of the diversity of poets and their respective acculturations, their lived lives, the colors of their skin, their ancestry, faith traditions, and sexual orientations, their often complex relationships with America, uh, the book organically took on an identity of its own. As Robert Frost declared, no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. Mark, you're a poet. Your thoughts? Um, well, you know, I know uh, 
I know Joseph. Um, he's been on my story. I've featured him on my um, story Charlotte blog post. And in fact, I uh, featured him in the context of Crossing the Rift. Um, I've, I, I have that book and it's a really powerful book about um, uh, poets responding to 9-11. But it's not what you might expect. You know, it, it, it's not about, um, part of it deals with the crumbling of the, of the towers, but part of it really deals with the impact psychologically of that catastrophe that that um aggressive act um and what it, how people individually respond to it and i think that poetry does a really is a really good medium to deal with those kinds of uh uh feelings i i i know several of the poets that are featured in that in that um collection uh, including my friend Chris Davis, who's featured in there, um, and I think um, I think his point about bringing poets together and and seeing how we have one cataclysmic event, but the poets respond to it in different ways and looking at it from different angles through different eyes, uh, it adds to the complexity of our understanding of of the impact of the event, the causes of the event and how it uh, relates to individual people. All right, Sarah, you're up with the next one. Yeah, so um, next we have From Family Legend to the Printed Page by Barry Swanson, which um, is a post that explores how he uh, turned to an interesting family history story. I believe it was a relative of his wife, um, someone from, from her backstory and her family, and took his story and turned it into a historical novel. And he gives some tips on how to do that, how to do research, and how to kind of combine the actual facts that you're using with your own creative instincts for storytelling. Um, the excerpt we have here is, research might seem tedious, but it is necessary. Learning about another period of history can be exciting, especially when telling the story of a family member. I have a bookcase full of World War II resource, bo resource books, novels, and even manuals. Those were invaluable as I did my best to understand the immensity of that conflict and the daily struggles of those men and women who served. Um, and he makes some really interesting points in this article. Of course, it's, it's, I think there are different responsibilities when you're writing about um, a fictional character versus someone who is a real person or was a real person. And then there's kind of an extra layer added on when it's someone who is a family member <laughs> you have a personal connection to. And so there may be different considerations that you need to make when you're, when you're doing that. Um, and he talks a lot about the importance of being authentic and trying to make sure that you're bringing in real factual research and double checking, you know, don't just trust everything that you find on Google, even though it's a great first stop for your research. Um, so yeah, I found that he made some very interesting points here. Yeah, and I would say, too, since I wrote uh, Deadly Decorations, which had a historical aspect, I've got a shelf full of about seven or eight books uh, on that topic. And it's interesting because, uh, I don't know, the amateur lawyers over time seem to be the ones that wanted to write books about uh, this event in history. And they were just back and forth like they'd be arguing in court <laughs> or something about <laughs> what actually happened uh, in this scenario. Uh, and I know, Mark, uh, you probably talked uh, with your students about research, but that... Uh, I don't know, maybe students, uh, they want to move more quickly. What do you have to do to get them to research? Well, you know, you're, it's possible to research too much. Um, uh, there's a phrase that uh, writers use, they're going down the rabbit hole. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I know my wife just absolutely loves to research topics, and sometimes she will 
just become obsessed with trying to find some particular historical fact. Did this wall exist in 1602 or not? I don't know whether this wall existed in 1602. I've got to find it out. And, uh, you know, three days later, she's still trying to figure out whether this wall existed. Um, so, um, but to her, it's really important to get the historical facts correct, and she'll go to any lengths to uh, determine that. But I think for my students, um, I, I want them to ground their writing in research, whether that research is uh, more archival or based on writings, or whether, like in this case, somebody talking about family history, well, that, that could tie into um, what we sometimes call oral history, where you, you know, you interview somebody. Um, and I think family stories, oral history are wonderful things. I, there's a children's author I really like named Mildred Taylor, uh, the first, one of the first African-Americans to win the Newbery Medal. And she wrote this fantastic historical novel uh, for children called Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. And it all started off with her interviewing her father about his childhood growing up in the 1930s in Mississippi. And then from that family story, she ended up um, writing this fantastic historical novel. But, you know, some don't let the facts and figures get in the way of your story. Um, sometimes, you know, uh, uh, you have to shade things over a little bit and, you know, combine events and keep the story going and not feel like, well, but it didn't really happen this way. It really happened that it was on Thursday, but if it needs to happen on Tuesday in your book, let it happen on Tuesday. Well, that's what we lawyers used to say uh, when we had a case uh, where the law was against us. We say, don't let the law get in the way of some good facts. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> Uh, all right, well, this next one that Mark, you're going to do, the Pencil Chronicles, just a quick setup. Kathy Frio came to me with this. Uh, she was working with uh, incarcerated women, um, and she had one that uh, had taken up poetry and didn't know how to get her voice out into the world. And so we uh, helped uh, facilitate that by letting her put her blog up on our blog post. So take it from there, Mark. Well, this is called The Pencil Chronicles by Heather Westerfield. Uh, this article explores the author's experience of learning to write and experiencing the challenges and joys of writing while incarcerated. And the excerpt reads this way. Since being incarcerated, I have been diagnosed with a personality disorder, which was completely unknown to me and causes me to appear emotionless and detached. Yet in my writing, I am able to express emotion effortlessly, allowing people to see a deeper, more intimate side of me that doesn't usually come through in everyday conversation. And I think that point is a really good point in terms of um, using writing to express emotions. Sometimes uh, we have beha learned behavior patterns or things that are tied to our own psychological makeup that make it difficult for us to express emotions, maybe in the presence of somebody, but that in the context of writing, we're maybe uh, in a quieter moment. We were talking about quietness a little bit ago. Uh, you're able to actually express um, uh, uh, your emotion. Father had Asperger's, um, and uh, my father was absolutely brilliant man, but he had very difficult times expressing emotions. He couldn't really express them. Um, I don't think my father ever told anybody that he loved anybody. He, 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 was, he just couldn't really, he expressed his love in other ways. 
Um, so I became very close to my father, but the way I became close to my father was through our shared love of stories. So we, he would read aloud to me when I was a child. And so it was the written word, the sharing of stories that he was able in a kind of subtextual way to express emotion. So I kind of, uh, I've never been incarcerated, thank goodness, but, um, um, I can relate to the points that Heather Westerfield made about using writing to, uh, to get in touch with one's emotions and express one's mm. emotions. Any thoughts there? Yeah, I think that's fascinating. I mean, I think writing can be very therapeutic and it can allow you to both um, express things that you don't necessarily know how to express in other ways and also maybe tap into parts of yourself that you don't even know are there and, and find things about yourself that you don't realize that come out in the writing. Um, I mean, sometimes I look back on things I've written over the years and I'm like, oh, there are patterns there. Oh, no, <laughs> that's not a good sign. <laughs> Something for therapy. Um, but yeah, I think that writing is, it helps you kind of figure out who you are in some ways, um, mm. that you maybe ignore certain things as you're going through your day to day life. But when you sit down, you're really trying to, to, you know, construct characters and figure out um, the issues that matter to you as you're writing. There, there's always things that come out there. Um, and so I think that it's helpful to be really honest with yourself in your writing and allow yourself to explore that. It's it's good for you as a person and it makes your writing more vibrant and it's probably going to be more relatable and real to other people too if you allow yourself to go to that very real place. Yeah, it's a powerful, powerful piece, uh, very inspirational. All right, next one up is uh, Help, I've Got Writer's Block by Maggie Smith. This article explores writer's block, starting with the premise that, quote, writer's block is sometimes not about the writing itself, close quote, and sometimes due to the desire for perfection, timing, or the fear of the process or the topic to be explored and ending with several tricks to overcome the problem. I think it's interesting because this is also tying back to some things we talked about <laughs> earlier as relates to maybe uh, revising uh, too many times and maybe getting stuck about whether you continue to revise or not. But uh, here's the excerpt. The average person has 70,000 thoughts a day so trust me, you're not out of ideas. Instead, you need to give yourself permission to explore the ideas you're having. Carry a notebook with you for a week and jot down 10 interesting things you see, hear, smell, touch, or taste daily. Write a sentence at the end of the day that incorporates those notes and imagine how they could fit into your story. And then she has other suggestions as well. Or, and I ascribe to Mark's theory, take a walk, you know, <laughs> go, go out there. Maybe that's where he found some of these ideas for the peeve and the grudge, which we're going to talk about in the next uh, episode here. But I've had several authors who were adamant on the show that there's no such thing as writer's block. I've had others who've said, you know, yes, it is a thing and so forth. Um, but I, I think the point is well made that it's sometimes not about the writing itself. Thoughts? Yeah, I think this um, this ties into a number of things we've talked about recently. Even in one of our recent episodes, Paul Bialy's, um two-minute tip, I think, was about writer's block and how uh, it doesn't necessarily really exist, or maybe it's not what, what you think it is, where you're actually out of ideas. You know, as Maggie Smith says here, you have a lot of thoughts. You have ideas. It's just a matter of maybe capturing them as they come to you and being open to them, using some of that quiet time that we talked about to allow the ideas to surface. Um, and this also points to what we talked about with maybe you know, research and revising are both good, but they can also be a trap where you just keep doing those things and don't actually write. So you have to know where you need to, to stop and either start writing if you've been researching or if you've been rewriting and rewriting and revising and revising to know when to say, okay, it's, it's done <laughs> and move on to the next project. Yeah, and I, as, you know, as we turn to Mark with his comments, I'd say, Mark, 
just give your students an assignment. They can't have writer's block. They got to turn it in by certain days. Yeah, right? I'll, well, sometimes I'll just decide <laughs> that we're going to fail the class instead. Um, but um, <laughs> but writer's block does exist, but I think it's not really for the reason sometimes people think it is. It's not because people don't have ideas. It's be I think that writer's block, for many people at least, ties to a fear of rejection or failure. Um, and a sense that if I never finish this, if I never send it out, then nobody can ever reject. One of the things that's really hard about trying to publish as a writer is the deal with rejection. One of the things, of course, nowadays with uh, independent publishing uh, becoming so readily available is that we don't actually have to deal with that kind of rejection that you would have with traditional publishing where you send something out to an editor, to an agent and get it turned down. But it's, it's a little deflating when you think you have written the world's best story or poem or book and the person uh, will say, uh, well, um, uh, sorry, it uh, just doesn't measure up. It doesn't suit our needs at this time, whatever they might say. Um, so if you never send it out, then you never get the rejection and then you don't have to deal with it. But on some level, that is a form of writer's block. It's like, I can't finish this book because I don't really want to take the next step because the next step might involve um, uh, rejection and it's hard to deal with rejection. So I'm not sure that everybody who has writer's block is wrestling with that uh, emotion or that concern, but I know a lot of people do. Um, and sometimes you just have to say, well, uh, when I was a young professor and sending out lots of articles, uh, you know, these are more scholarly articles. Um, but, you know, I, I, I never lie and pretend I'm one of those writers that I've never received rejection. I've received plenty of rejections letters over the years. But my little trick to overcoming writer's block or dealing with rejection is I said I would always have three articles in circulation at the same time. Um, and uh, Landis might be old enough to remember this. I know, Sarah, you're not old enough to remember this. But there used to be this thing called an SASE. Do you know what SASE is? Self-addressed stamped envelope. <laughs> excellent, excellent, excellent. Self-addressed stamped envelope. That's how it used to be. So you'd send out your article or your story, whatever it is. You'd have The publisher didn't want to actually uh, waste postage on you, so you had to waste postage on yourself. So um, you'd go to the post office and say, how much would it cost to mail this back to me? I hope it doesn't get mailed back to me, but it likely will. Um, and, um, and so um, I would always make sure that I had three things always in circulation. So that if one of them came back, I didn't get too depressed because I said, well, I have two more out. Um, and then I would revise whatever came back and send it out again. And that enabled me to keep going. Um, even though on occasion I got rejection letters. Um, I never let it stop. Me. All right. That's good advice. Uh, all right. Three more. Um, and uh, we got the fun title here, Sarah. Yeah, so this actually kind of um, works in with the topic of rejection. It's called uh, Pat Conroy versus Bo Duke, Failure Can Be Good for the Soul by Cliff Yergin. And um, this is an article where he talks about failure and rejection. And he, he gives examples of some um, kind of failure and rejection stories of a number of different well-known authors. So that's kind of comforting to read. <laughs> um, it serves as comfort to writers that even the most successful authors have failed, along with advice about how failure can be a good thing. Um, the excerpt here is sometimes failure can be good for your soul and your writing career. The big boss lady of an agency in New York City rejected my first book with this note. 
When we said we were looking for new Southern writers, we meant the next Pat Conroy, not the next Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> Failure. Embrace it. She identified my target audience and my brand for free. Besides, the Dukes of Hazard was on the air for six years and 147 episodes, and down in my neck of the woods, more people know less about Amy Tan and Mahjong, and a lot more about Roscoe P. Coltrane and Boss Hogg. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I feel like rejection is, is kind of an evergreen topic for writers. It's something that writers seem to love to talk about because, um, we all face rejection at different points and it's, it's nice to hear that you're not the only one. <laughs> Maybe there's a little bit of schadenfreude there too. Um, but yeah, I think you make some really good points that rejection doesn't necessarily mean that, um, what you wrote is just terrible in general, or you're terrible in some sort of essential way. It may just be that that's not your audience or that's not the person who's looking for what you're writing. And maybe your audience wants Dukes of Hazard, and that's what you're writing. And, and there's clearly lots of people who love that. And he found that audience. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's, this is a fun one to go and look at on the website if you want, because he does give like some good examples of actual specific rejection stories and how many rejection letters are received by different famous authors for books that went on to be bestsellers and things like that. So um, don't take it to heart too much if you get some sort of rejection. Yeah, one of the antidotes for this uh, is finding your community, which leads uh, very well into our next uh, post, which Mark has. So, Mark, you want to take that one? So this post is called It Takes a Village, Finding Your Writing Peers by Sita Romero. This article explores the importance of finding writing peers to assist the writer in their writing journey. And here's the excerpt. If you aspire to write, all I can tell you is this. Don't wait for an excuse to find your people. Look for others who are doing what you are doing, who will lift you up and support you on your journey. I know I wouldn't be the same writer or person without the support of my Friday writing group. I can't imagine spending the last five years trying to birth a book into the world without the support I've had in those two years, this group of writers. And I think uh, this point is really very important uh, for many writers. I wouldn't say it's true for all writers, but I think many writers really do uh, benefit from having a writing group, having a sort of safe space where they can show drafts and know that um, the people in the group are on your side and are trying to make it better and bolster your confidence. And sometimes in these writing group uh, situations, just knowing that you have to have a draft of a chapter by Friday, because this person talks about a Friday group, um, it's like, geez, well, it's Thursday. I guess I better write something, you know, um, and that in and of itself can be a useful thing. We sometimes need these little intermediary deadlines to get us to move forward. Um, so I think that's a that's a good that's a good idea. But I I don't think it necessarily always needs to be a writer or other writers who are doing the same kind of writing that you're doing. Sometimes I think having somebody who's quite different from you in terms of their writing interests uh, can add a perspective that um, that people who are writing uh, lawyerly mysteries, if you only consult with writers who are writing lawyerly mysteries, you'll only get a certain kind of feedback. So, um, so uh, but, you know, uh, having writing groups, it's, it's, it's very important to many writers. Yeah, and Sarah, I know you, we, we've talked about this before. Uh, we, in the last couple episodes, I think mm -hmm. we had your blog post on joining a writing group, but uh, so you'll just be preaching probably to the, 
choir here on this, but I'm sure it's been very valuable in your career, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I rely pretty heavily on other writers, I think, to help me with getting feedback and um, just kind of support, networking. There's so many different things you can get out of it. And Mark made a great point, too, about the deadlines. You know, that's something we've talked about in this episode is sometimes you need that that extra thing to push you maybe out of writer's block um, or to give you motivation. And a, joining a writer's group is a great way to give yourself that kind of structure where you have a deadline to turn drafts into other people. Um, and also just knowing that other human beings are going to lay eyes on that draft can maybe push you to work a little bit harder on it. <laughs> so I think it makes you a better writer for sure. All right. Last post, uh, writing creativity books on my bookshelves by me. <laughs> this article uh, offers a glimpse into the writing shelf of just one author uh, with writing craft creativity books uh, written by the likes of Stephen King, Anna Lamont, Jessica Brody, Lisa Crone, Elizabeth Gilbert, and more. And here's my excerpt. Writers must read to be writers. They must read books in their genre and outside their genre to see how better writers do their work. It's also nice for a writer to have books to refer to on writing, creativity, punctuation, style, and legal issues. And I list those uh, in my blog post. Uh, I've got Stephen King's book on writing, which I highly recommend. Of course, everybody knows about Anne Lamont, Bird by Bird. Uh, Jessica Brody's Save the Cat Writes a Novel um, is a good sort of uh, basic explanation of, of the act structure and how it works for writing genre fiction. Annie Dillard, The Writing Life, Lisa Crone, Story Genius kind of gets into this idea of character. Uh, Carrie Knowles was on the podcast. She's got a self-guided workbook and gentle tour on learning how to write stories from start to finish where she talks about finding the emotional truth in stories. Maureen Ryan Griffin, who's local, she's got a book, Spinning Words into Gold. Kathy Pickens has been on the podcast before, and she's written a book called Create, which is all about creativity. And, of course, I love Elizabeth Gilbert's uh, Big Magic. Don't quite love so much Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way, but it's on my bookshelf because I wasn't ever a morning pages kind of person. <laughs> Twyla Tharp has The Creative Habit, and Craig Nova's written a book, which I really liked, uh, Book Trout. I'm sorry, Brook Trout and The Riding Life. And since I'm a fly fisherman, I found it fun to find those connections. But, uh, you know, I've also got reference books in my bookshelves uh, like Strunk and White and, uh, you know, some other books related to uh, punctuation. But I actually, you know, honestly speaking here, I, I hire copy editors <laughs> for my work who follow, uh, you know, the style books, and I don't have to learn as much about that. All right. I know y'all have got uh, books on your bookshelves. About uh, Do you have any favorite books uh, as we wrap up here on writing that you keep on your shelf, Mark? Well, you mentioned Strunk and White. You know, Strunk mm -hmm. and White, the white part of Strunk and White is E.B. White. E.B. White uh, is an author I know a lot about. He wrote uh, Charlotte's Web and uh, Stuart Little in my field of children's literature, but he also was a uh, editor and columnist for the New Yorker. He wrote many uh, pieces for grown-ups as well. But one of the things I really like about Elements of Style, that's what, you know, we always say strunk and white, but what the title of the book is uh, Elements of Style, is that word style. Um, and that it's, writing isn't just about learning the mechanical, uh, grammatical rules that one should follow if you're trying to write uh, grammatically correct sentences. And sometimes you don't want to write grammatically correct sentences. But if you do, um, uh, uh, there are lots of style books 
that, I mean, uh, uh, handbooks that can help you with that. But what Strunk and White does is also talk about how writing can contribute to your own style um, and the different uh, word choices that we make, the phrasing that we use. Um, it all becomes part of our own style as a writer. Um, and so I know I was jokingly referring to Sarah as the next Hemingway. Well, um, but, you know, Hemingway had a particular style um, that was short direct, aggressive sentences. Um, another writer I like is uh, Dickens. Dickens had long, meandering sentences, um, in part because, you know, he was being paid by the word. So um, the longer the sentence, the better, <laughs> from a financial point of view. I like both styles, but, you know, writing styles, I think uh, Strunk and White can help us think about what is our writing style and uh, how we can... Uh, hone that um so yeah i'm a big believer in uh, elements of style all right uh, sarah do you have a favorite writing book um you know there's a lot on that list that have been kind of on my list for years of things that i know that i should read and because i've heard them recommended a million times and i haven't gotten around to reading them yet um i'll i'll throw in a screenwriting one just for a different perspective um william goldman's adventures in the screen trade he was one of the most famous screenwriters ever he wrote like butch casting and the sundance kid mm -hmm. and the princess bride um Stepford wives a lot of different things and this book came out i think probably in the 80s so obviously the the world and the entertainment industry have changed a lot since then, but there's still a lot in it that feels um, relevant today and that is still true about kind of the mindset of how things work in that industry and why people um, create the things that they do. And it's also just a really entertaining read. So it's fun, certainly if you are a screenwriter or interested in screenwriting and just for general purposes too, it's kind of a fun memoir about his, mm. his career in that industry. Yeah, and I'd add one book as we close this out that uh, was recommended by several Authors who've appeared on the show, some of whom have been really bestsellers. Uh, it's Donald Moss's uh, book about how to write a breakout novel. And uh, so if you want to write a breakout novel, I guess you need to read a book. Uh, he's a big-time New York uh, public publicist uh, or agent. So, All right, well, look, we're going to uh, shift now to uh, uh, our wrap-up uh, right after this. Charlotte Readers Podcast is on social media, and we'd love to have you follow and engage with us. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Charlotte Readers Podcast. Check us out. All right, so we're uh, we're going to wrap up now with our takeaways and uh, what's coming next. So, Sarah, takeaways today? Um, I feel like I learned a lot today. We talked a lot about... Um, sort of how you, when you write and when you don't write, whether it's giving yourself kind of quiet time between writing sessions to let those ideas flow, um, researching and how much to research and when to stop researching, how to avoid writer's block, a lot of like good concrete advice for finding your flow as a writer and, and finding a process that works for you. Um, and as always, you know, talking about rejection always kind of makes you feel better that you're not alone in that space. So <laughs> I, I got a lot of inspiration and comfort out of our discussion today. Yeah, Mark, and you spent a long time with us today on the podcast. Any thoughts? Yeah, you know, I was just thinking about that actual point that you just made. Um, it's interesting to me, being on this uh, podcast, uh, in this context, of uh, a sense of, well, maybe we wouldn't go so far as a community, but a sense of uh, talking to other writers and other people who share a similar interest in in not just your own writing, but the writing of others. I want to compliment both of you, uh, Landis and Sarah, and everybody else associated with this podcast, 
because um, one of the qualities that comes through every episode that I've heard is an interest not only in your own writing, in your own successes, in your own uh, publications, but the writing of other people. Um, and I think that um, you all do a really good job of um, giving some oxygen, putting some light on other people's writing. Um, and one of the things about really successful writers sometimes is they become a little bit self-centered um, because it's... Uh, uh, you sometimes might have seen this in, in panels. Oh, well, I know in academic world sometimes, well, let me tell you about my latest book. In my latest book, I have completely upended the whole rubric. Oh, you know, and on and on and on they go. Um, but, you know, you never do that. You know, it's nothing, there's nothing wrong about talking about one's latest book and, and showing enthusiasm and excitement. But, hey, give somebody else some space, too. And you all do that really well, and it's been fun to be part of it. Well, thank you, Mark. We appreciate that. And you did that just like I asked you to. I appreciate that. <laughs> but you didn't. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I, I've enjoyed today, too. Uh, it's fun to have you ride along with us, Mark. And I love your perspectives on uh, – you know, the writing rules, uh, maybe, yeah, there's some value to some of them, but uh, don't go overboard. And that came through on the on the draft and the too much draft and re revising. And I, I enjoyed the interview today, too. It's just been a lot of fun. And so, Sarah, if you could take us into uh, what's coming next. Yeah. So next time we're going to have Mark with us again, um, guest hosting. And then we're also going to get a little bit deeper into his book, uh, The Peeve and the Grudge and Other Preposterous Poems, which is a whimsical children's book. Um, I'm super excited to hear about that. We're also going to feature The Sky Club, which is an exciting piece of historical fiction from Terry Roberts. It's set in Asheville at the time of the stock market crash. Um, I had a really good interview with him where you talked um, about writing historical fiction, gave some insights there. We've also got a discussion of mystery writer Joe Conjol's blog post about celebrating the gift of writing. And as always, we're going to have writing tips and book recommendations and um, community updates and all sorts of good stuff. All right. And uh, just a reminder, if y'all are still with us, we thank you for spending some of your valuable time today. Send us in your elevator pitch. We've got a link there on the podcast uh, now for you to do that. Uh, if you've got a book and you want to pitch it, own your 30-second elevator pitch and uh, we'll play it on the podcast. So... Till next time, uh, read on and write on.